Hey, Chris, look at this box of goodies I acquired from a garage no, sale. No, Brian. What? No, I can't. I just can't do it today. What? What are you? What are you talking about? I, this is how we do every show. Yeah, I just, I just too out of it. I'm afraid there was a bit of a uh, trying to feel better after watching going to see the latest Adam Sandler movie celebration last night. Oh, dude, and, you you saw the latest Adam Sandler movie? Yeah. Oh my god. So I'm really I can't do the cold open. I can't. Yeah, no. I can't read the script. I'm I, sorry. I mean, my heart wouldn't be in it either. I mean, personally, I'm exhausted from the work week, but. Adam Salem, I mean, do you need, like, a blanket and some soup? No, no, you just gotta punch your way through it, you know what I mean? Yeah, but you know what might help? What's that? Beer! You know what? That's the one that got me. Kitties, welcome to another electrically stimulating episode of Digital Noise here on OneOfUs.net. This is the Blu-ray DVD review podcast that seeks to cure your blues by increasing your collection of blues. That seems to be sensible in a synonym sort of way. Yeah, see, see how that works? <laughs> You're I'm trying to think of some portmanteau between semantical and maniacal. <laughs> <laughs> Semantoniacal. <laughs> I'm your host with the least, Brian Salisbury, and I am joined by the clown prince of home media, Mr. Christopher Lawrence Cox. <laughs> you need the little, like, Cesar Romero mustache. I love the fact that they have a vinyl toy, not just of the Joker, but specifically of the 1960 Cesar Romero Joker, <laughs> and it's got a little etched mustache. Check out this new box set! <laughs> <laughs> and then you kill a whole bunch of people because you're the Joker. That's yeah. how it works. Uh, he's so funny. He's hilarious. He's a laugh riot. Anyway, I want to remind you that Digital Noise, just like all of our content at One of Us, is available on iTunes if you just search One of Us in the podcast section. And if you're there, why not give us a five-star rating and leave a review? That would be super awesome, and we would appreciate it. I'd like you even better than I already do, and See? I didn't think that was possible. Aw. Or, if you're not a big iTunes user, you can use Stitcher, because we're there, too. Yeah. Whatever still, that is. Still don't quite know what it is. <laughs> still, but, but we're on it. But so. we're there, so it's it's there for you to use. Yep. You can, also, one up. Yeah, you can also follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. You can follow the website on Twitter at OneOfUsNet. And you can also like the website on Facebook, Facebook.com slash OneOfUsNet. And just to remind you, we have officially put in place our incentive package for subscribers. Oh, my God. There's so many things just for you. Just for you. And this week, actually... Uh, if you are of the appropriate level, which off the top of my head this moment, I can't remember which one that is, uh, we will be releasing our first members-only commentary. So there's going to be a commentary in the forum here coming up this week that is exclusive just to you guys. And so. you're going to have to wait uh, to see what it is until it pops up in there. And this is a hell of a time to go ahead and get on the forum and get registered for it. Because if you're a subscriber, part, a lot of your perks are stuff that are hidden in there and rooms just for you. Mm -hmm. So... You might as well go ahead and sign up. And if you are a subscriber, you uh, check your inbox because we sent out emails to all the subscribers letting them know, hey, thank you for subscribing at this level and uh, asking for you to respond with if you are in the forum with your forum nickname so that we can upgrade your forum uh, membership to the appropriate level. Exactly. And this is one of those things that like is a lot of work. So the sooner you get it to us, the better. <laughs> Absolutely. It makes it that much easier for us to have a complete list. We want to make sure you get the stuff that you have earned by being supporters of oneofus.net, being close members of the inner sanctum of us nation. Indeed. 
Hooray! It's like I, we virtually are sitting next to your, are you on the couch with our arms around you snuggling. Take your virtual hand off my virtual thigh. <laughs> anyway, it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes, The Letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. And our first question comes from, again, a man whose name I love to butcher, and just because I do it every time. And that is Nicodem Bredlich, who asks, What TV show do you keep watching over and over again, and why? So I'm assuming he means the kind of shows that have already gone off the air that we find ourselves revisiting on a regular basis. Yeah, maybe. I mean, if there was something that was still on the air, it'd be Archer. I definitely go back to that, the episodes of that more than anything. It's one sure. of those, like... I got a half an hour to kill. I'll just put on a random Archer episode. Gotcha. Always yeah. fun. But, um, you know, when I grew up, there weren't as many options of things to watch. We had, like, a dial that went chunk, chunk, chunk. I heard oh, of those there days. There you go. Three channels. <laughs> I think I saw that in Quest for Fire. Yeah. That yeah. was pretty much what it was like. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, uh, when we weren't out scrounged, uh, scavenging for food, <laughs> we were watching those three channels. And I had rewatched a lot of stuff because of, you know, lack of anything else good to see. I mean, although, to be fair, I would have rewatched. Monty Python's Flying Circus a billion times anyway. Uh, so I certainly have seen all those episodes a lot. But since, you know, having access to the whole world of media, the only stuff I really regularly go back to and re-watch are Star Trek and Star Trek Next Generation episodes huh. and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer episodes. I admit I've seen Once More with Feeling maybe 20, 30 times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I think I told you this this the other day. I don't think I've seen any episode of Buffy at all except for that one, and I've seen that one like five times. Yeah. Well, lately for me, it's actually been The Sopranos. Uh, mm-hmm. I have, and and this I, when I say lately, I mean it every every year or so. I I find I get the bug to go back and watch uh, select seasons of The Sopranos, and I've actually been watching the sixth season a lot, which I know a lot of people. Uh, kind of had issues with, and I understand it in- entirely, but for me, that is one of the single most bold seasons of any television series ever constructed. Mm. I absolutely love it. And, uh, on top, I mean, obviously the comedy stuff, like, like you said, I'll throw Archer episodes on, old community episodes, Parks and Rec. Adventure Time. Adventure Time. I, I, and of course, Friends. I go back to Friends all the time, except for the 10th season. I will never watch the 10th season again. Oh. Because it makes me too sad. I didn't know that that was a thing. Was it's, that, well, was that when you finally grew up and realized Friends wasn't that great a show? Nah. <laughs> oh, you and your Seinfeld cynicism. Um, well, no, it, what happened was, when the, so I got into Friends a little bit late, so I was catching up with the, the box sets on DVD while the show was still airing, and by the time I got to where I had seen the end of the ninth season, it was the summer before my senior year of college, and I was living uh, on campus in Muncie, Indiana, tiny little Muncie, Indiana, because I had a internship at a juvenile detention center. And so I was living in the apartment by myself. All my friends had gone home. And uh, so I sat down and I watched the 10th season. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I'm like, I got to that last episode. and I'm like, great. All my real friends are out of town. And now my television friends there are no, no more new episodes. It was just this crushing thing of like, oh, man, I am completely alone now. This sucks and, until school starts again. Uh, so because of that, that emotional scar I have never been able to watch the 10th season again. Wow. It's not that it's a bad season. It's just I can't. I can't do it. There's too much emotion. That's a hell of a story. You know what we need to do to fix this for you? What? We're going to, like, strap you to a chair. Oh, Jesus. And we're going to pry your eyelids open, and we're going to make you watch the 10th season while someone's giving you a blowjob the entire time. Define someone, because I feel like this is a a fool's bet that I've made before. Oh. 
Hold on, let me send an email to Bo real quick. Damn it! I knew it! <laughs> oh, well. Plans off, Bo. Abort! <laughs> Abort! <laughs> and that's the quality entertainment you get from one of us.net. You're oh, very welcome. Let me uh, throw out real quick as well the X-Files. I always go back to the X-Files. I mean, I have the complete set, and I know exactly what the best episodes are, and sometimes I'm just like, i got to watch Skelly Mulder. So I'll like go back and put on the Erlenmeyer flask or home or one of the really great ones and just enjoy the hell out of myself. Nice. It's another one of those shows I just never really get tired of. Sure. Yeah. Well, our next question comes from Jesse Shade, and his question is very specific. Has a movie ever made either of you guys so mad that you literally threw out the disc or tape afterwards? Um, I don't think I've thrown it out because I'm uh, thrifty. And I realize no matter how bad a movie is, there's someone who'll pay money for it. Thrifty, cheap bastard. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, what, potato, potato. And nowadays it's trying to not die. So, yes. <laughs> you know, every little cent helps. Oh, you and your nagging desire to stay alive. I know, right? So selfish. Pay the rent and a shelter. Oh. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I've certainly watched out, walked out of movies in the theater so mad that I was like, I really tempted to just burn this theater to the ground. I almost burned the theater showing That's My Boy to the ground. I, I considered it, except all you guys are still in it. So I was like, I'll lose some friends, <laughs> I guess. I really just want to torch this theater. That was really bad. Although, there was one time that we were watching a movie that I got so mad that, and it wasn't even, this is how mad the movie made me. It wasn't even my disc. But when the tray came out and, like, it just sat there and nobody got up to get it, I finally just stood up and opened the sliding glass door to my friend's apartment and just chucked it into the yard. <laughs> and it was The Reader with Kate Winslet. Really? <laughs> that movie, the the premise of that movie, the insulting assumption that there is as much emotional depth in the fact that a woman can't read as the extermination of the Jews. I was like, I'm sorry that you can't read. Please do not give that as much emotional weight as the extermination of an entire race, because it doesn't. So that that irritated me to, to such levels that I was just like, you and your probable Oscar can go fuck yourself. You're so sensitive, Brian. I hate that you're movie sensitive. so much. Girls love you because you're sensitive. <laughs> they do. I'm moody and I play guitar. <laughs> I, I don't You're play like guitar. any given person in the band Oasis. Yeah. Actually, I play guitar, so, you know, what's up, ladies? That's really... I guess that's hip again. Got that sweet, sweet flock of seagulls sound. It's what's hip up? to be square. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you like that uh, that drum riff in the fixes, uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart? I can do that. Who does Or yes. Damn it. That's yes. Damn it. You know, come on. The best drum riff ever is... They, oh, the the guy on the Phil Collins song? Yes! Man, Neil Peart's going to be very angry with no, you. No, that, that single riff right there... All right, so when we were watching Ra Master Pancake do Wrath of Khan... Oh, yeah. They they put that song on top of the, the dogfight in the, in the nebula in Wrath of Khan. It worked so well. the whole audience went... Do 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 on was, the drum part because everybody knows it so well. It's funny they meant that as a joke, but it worked really but it worked fucking really well. Well, it made it into a um uh, uh what's the name of the director? The guy who did a uh, uh, Manhunter and oh Michael, Michael Mann. Mann. Yeah, it made it into a Michael Mann movie. It was like this is crazy, but it worked. What is that Michael guy who did that movie Manhunter? Michael Manhunter Michael something. I think that's his name. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for your questions. We're gonna slam the lid closed on the letterbox for another week. And move on to the reviews. And I want to remind you once again that everything we talk about will have its own little image on the page here at oneofus.net. If you click on that image, it'll take you directly to Amazon. Even if you don't buy that item, just getting to Amazon via our links. If you buy anything, you benefit the site. That's, and we thank you so much. That's pretty cool, Daddy-O. It's very cool. 
Speaking of things, well, never mind. We're going to start with I Frankenstein. Jeez, <laughs> that's the least amount of fanfare ever for. I was going to say, this. speaking of things that are cool, and then I remembered we're starting with I Frankenstein. Uh, I see. Um, <laughs> no, there's one thing you can say very positive about I Frankenstein. It, it ends? makes you realize that the Underworld movies really are actually kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because they're allowed to be fucking vampires versus werewolves instead of gargoyle i still don't the, just the what whose idea they, was they that? function I, I like people have told me that there is some sort of christian lore about how gargoyles on churches are actually angels but why can't you just make them angels i like they function as angels throughout the whole movie yeah and yet they never plus they don't the do anything sh- cool as gargoyles there was the really excellent show gargoyles and i think that at this point that's gargoyles yeah to me i'm always like no that's gargoyles they did it right they got that i mean i never thought it, there was a niche there where you needed to do an anthropomorphized gargoyles thing yeah but they did it right same guys who paul denny and those guys who did batman the animated series great job this like it's just it's just nonsense mm-hmm. and not fun nonsense no it's boring try and plod through the most predictable plot really a movie that wants to start its own underworld franchise by a completely different group of people but it fails so utterly miserably. and and a movie that you know more so than most obscures a lot of its action sequences with the bad i mean uh i i didn't get a chance to watch this like the home version but when i saw it in the theater the action was so obscured by the 3D that it was really dizzying. I was just like, come on, well, I guys, I can't see a damn thing. I the 3D version, and I could largely make out the action, but there's nothing really that impressive. The one thing I will say is that uh, Aaron Eckhart, who plays <laughs> the, you know, Frankenstein's monster, who takes the name Adam, well, like, I still laugh because I'm like going, yes, the hideous Aaron Eckhart with yes. some faint scarring. <laughs> People look at him and they're like, get the torches! He's too handsome! A monster! Obviously a demon! <laughs> yeah. It's like, what a laughable choice. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when he's fighting with these two sticks, they, he actually obviously did some real training and some of the hand-to-hand, more hand-to-hand fights are actually like, that's not bad, but that's about as good as I can say anything good about this movie. I mean, for Christ's sakes, at this point, anything that casts Jai Courtney in it is like, alright, you've already screwed up. <laughs> yeah, just from the beginning. But the idea here is that we see right at the beginning, Doctor Victor Frankenstein has created the monster, Aaron Eckhart, uh, rejects it, and of course, as the story goes, uh, the monster kills Victor's wife Elizabeth, and then Victor chases it to the Arctic to get revenge. I don't know if it actually the story went that far, but um, what like the original story? Yeah, yeah that's did it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't actually read Mary Stewart's Stewart's Frankenstein since like college. So. Mary Shelley, and that Mary, yeah, Mary Stewart, Mary Stewart Masterson's <laughs> Frankenstein. No, there is a writer named. Mary Stewart. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Mary Shelley, yes, thank you. Bram, yeah, Bram Stoker's Twilight. <laughs> oh, no! Why? Why? Uh, but, he, you know, Victor is stupid, and he freezes to death in the Arctic. Uh, the monster brings his body back, for some reason, to his family graveyard and buries it, but as he's burying it, a bunch of, like, demons who are basically just people who they're vampires come on let's face it they're fucking vampires with the ugly faced vampire who can look human when they want to or look ugly faced when they get aggressive yeah. come after him and they almost beat him but then a bunch of gargoyles slash angels who look like gargoyles sometimes and look like regular really sexy people the rest of the time uh take out the demons and he's introduced to the fact that there's this war between demons and angels that's been going on forever and ever, and the angels are losing, and he doesn't care. God knows we don't care. Yeah. 
Sorry, I fell asleep. But, but he ends up getting dragged. Like Then he's like, okay, now he's been off for a while, but he's come back because I'm not entirely clear why yeah. in modern day. And the war continues, and the big bad guy is Bill Nighy, largely just playing the roles the exact same way he played the vampire lord in Underworld. Yeah, he's literally, there to, he's literally there to further the idea that this is exactly like an Underworld movie, when in fact it is not, because yeah. it's not fun. I'm, I was going to say, like, if you hate the Underworld movies, I, ca I can't blame you. I mean, what the hell? They are really really stupid but they're stupid they know how to be fun stupid fun if you like that a good b movie this doesn't know at all how to do it it's just dull and i hate the fact that uh yvonne Str strahovski i think is how you pronounce her name who was from chuck who's beautiful woman and i think a really good actress is put here is the most unconvincing si scientist ever you know <laughs> who's clearly going to be the love-ish interest for the mom i'm a science woman yeah. I do science. Like, who at the point where she's supposed to, like, not just be a scientist, but have, like, a, you know, be a romantic interest, they practically do, like, a shampoo commercial where she, like, <laughs> takes her hair down and shakes it, and you're like, oh, okay. In 3D! <laughs> um, there's nothing really. This is the, the, uh, the, uh, Van Helsing of its time. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just a bunch of CG crap with no real sense of fun to it, a ridiculous plot that isn't interesting enough to want to see what happens next. You no, know. And, and the biggest thing that really bothered me about this movie, there is no reason for him to be Frankenstein's monster. Him being Frankenstein's monster bears so little on the war between angels and demons. Like, they come up with this, like, oh, we want Dr. Frankenstein's manual, and it's like, then just get the fucking manual. You don't need Frank... Like, Frankenstein's monster is shoehorned into this, and my theory is... They wrote this movie about angels and demons to try and compete with, uh, you know, with, with Underworld. And then people were like, oh, you know what seems to be on the rise again is the Universal Monsters. There's all these Dracula movies in the work. There's all these Frankenstein. So let's just put Frankenstein's monster in it. And they're like, hold on. That, that we have nowhere to put him. Well, just shoehorn him in. Yeah. Because he's, like, there's no, he serves no function, he's not interesting. And this is one of these, it was only the Czech writers who were associated with Underworld. Uh, Lake, Lake, uh, what's it called? Lakeshore Enter Entertainment. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, yeah, that's a moneymaker. They want another one. And the problem is, they didn't get anybody who knew what they were doing. Yeah. It, it, it makes no sense. It's, it's, it's a completely, it's a complete waste of a movie, in my opinion. I actually completely agree uh, with you. It's by, uh, Kevin Griveaux wrote this if you want to call it a script that has written largely superhero stuff and strangely wrote underworld rise of the lichens. That was the best of the, of the underworld films, but uh, yeah, he's not, you know, he's also, you know, the, you know, I don't know. He's the, he was involved in cradle to the grave and Dickie Roberts, former child oh, star. Oh so. no, 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 no. Um, anyway, yeah, this is totally a skip it. It's not, it's, I know what you're saying. You're like, but yeah, I even dumb movies like this I can enjoy. This is just going to bore you. I still think Underworld Awakening is my favorite of the, uh. But what's the fourth one? Awakening. Okay, I'm sorry. That's the best one. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. that's, that's just so much fun. And again, if what you're going into looking for in this movie is fun, you're not going to find it, unfortunately. It's pieced together from other Underworld films, much like Frankenstein's Monster but is not as animate. It was just a poor plan in the first place. It was. Yeah. Anyway, that was I, Frankenstein. That was awkward. Let's now talk about that awkward moment. Yeah, that was an awkward moment. That awkward moment. Is that it? When we talk about this film. Uh, I already talked about this at length in the theatrical release, which you did not get to see. So I you did not. should lead on this one since now you've seen it. I should. This is, you know those comedies? There was a bunch of them in the 90s where a bunch of girls would live together and inevitably they would start dancing around the kitchen island 
singing Motown into their spoons, sure. eating ice cream. What do you mean, girls? That's what this movie is for dudes. Like, wow. that, this movie is basically taking that formula from the 90s where it's like, we're a bunch of independent women and we don't need guys and we're going to find ourselves. And just went, what if they made that movie with dudes? And that's exactly what we get with it. We get the, like, as much as this movie is a quote unquote crude comedy, as much as they are making dick jokes and, and talking about sex a lot and show, and like, there's jokes where it's like they're trying to have conversations with girls they're fucking. It's still a very like sensitive bromance, which I kind yeah. of find hilarious about it. Like it tries to walk that line. Um, but the basic premise here is that you have these these three guys that are living together. One of whom is played by Michael B. Jordan, who we will shortly see as Johnny Storm in, in Fantastic Four. I mean, which hopefully, hooray! I'm I'm excited. About I'm excited it. he's in it. I'm just hoping that the movie's good. The movie's sure. Good, yeah. uh, and he his wife actually leaves him at the beginning of the movie. And he goes to his friends, one of whom is played by Miles Teller, who will be playing Mr. Fantastic in the new Fantastic. So this is like half of the Fantastic Four in this film, accidentally. Uh, and Zac Efron is their other friend, and they kind of make this pact that, okay, none of us are going to be in relationships right now. We're just going to, we're going to, we're going to help him get his manhood back and, and fuck every chick he sees, and we'll stay out of relationships. But no relationships. But yeah, no relationships. Solidarity. Awesome. Solidarity. And then, of course, they can't stay out of relationships because they fall in love. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, that's the basic plot. It's a dude film that's not actually for dudes. Not even a little it's, bit. It tries to pretend like it's... Because there are films that are romantic comedies that are definitely more for dudes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I would say most, believe it or not, like most of the stuff by Richard Curtis is more for guys who are romantics than they are for women. Also, things like Shaun of the Dead and Gross Point Blank well, are two things sure. I could think of on top of my head. Loosely considered to be romantic. They're totally romantic comedies so with you, zombies and hitmen. You say so, Brian. They are. <laughs> but that awkward moment is decisively so... And even though, yes, all your protagonists are men, it this are, these are fantasy men in which they start off with a woman being able to laugh at how stupid they are for making the decision that they are they're not going to be in a relationship and watch them do – make typical generic man mistakes and we're supposed to laugh at them. The plot is ridiculously structured. But with all the problems this film has, it has one or three really great pluses. Zac Efron, Miles Teller, and Michael B. Jordan are genuinely good in it and have terrific chemistry together. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame that with all the, like, probably a lot of ad-libbing sequences as well, with all the chemistry they have together, with the genuinely funny moments that are in this, that the plot is just total nonsense. And yeah. it's hard to really buy into its any of its conceit. The script doesn't have any legs. It's just like, no. it, it has one conceit, which again, I think is just, let's make a female male romantic comedy and just populate it with dudes and it doesn't it doesn't really do anything with it no. it just kind of it just kind of stagnates it's it's yeah you're, you're right that it's based on a previous formula but then they don't really know anything interesting to do with it i'm like like you're watching it and you're actually a little depressed every time it decides to get back away from just them hanging out having a good time and mm -hmm. back into the plot because they just continued making irresponsible writing choices and things that nobody would ever do or behave as. I mean, especially the decision that Zac Efron makes at one point to be like, because he's like, Oh, well, wait, even though I'm pretty much totally in a relationship, I, I promised I wouldn't be. So I'm going to do this thing. You're like, no one would ever do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Imogen Poots is also in this playing his love interest, Mackenzie Davis and Jessica Lucas, uh, the three love interests for the boys, you know, uh, and Miles Teller really once again proves he's just a natural comedian. He's just got that. He's so like on top of, he's the Shia La LaBeouf we deserved. Exactly. Not the one we got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. he kind of is. He's like the Shia LaBeouf who he should have been without they were trying to sell him to us. And it's funny, as Shia LaBeouf com continues to implode, 
Yeah. Miles Teller's career is on the rise. I really do think they're the same. Like Shia LaBeouf is his portrait of Dorian Gray. It might be that, or it may just be that uh, Miles Teller is a Horcrux of True. Shia LaBeouf. It could be that. <laughs> Uh, That's what I choose to believe. Yeah. Um, either way, like I said, this is just not a very good movie. Uh, it's, but it is worth watching for some for, for some of the gags. It's one of those has one of the most bizarre outtakes I have ever seen in a movie. There's a there's an outtake where they're all sitting on the couch, and one of them just goes, "Hey, is Omar from The Wire sitting on our couch?" And they pan over, and there's Michael K. Williams for no conceivable reason, That's just bizarre. on set, and it's like. He's not even in the movie. That's bizarre. What I, the fuck? I did not watch the extras. But yeah, there's <laughs> stuff like that on here and, and quick hit uh, trailer interview combo type stuff. Um, like a the, the, uh, gag reel. This is the sort of thing that when your girlfriend wants to watch a, a girlfriend type movie, if she's not like if you if you have chosen poorly and you have a girlfriend who wants one that wants to watch this kind of stuff and occasionally you have to put up with that sort of thing. This is not going to be the most painful film to sit through. It's the best thing. I You're going to enjoy it at points, although it probably will lead to awkward moment conversations afterwards. The faintest of faint praise it's, for that awkward moment. Like I said, there are things I genuinely enjoyed about this, but ultimately, as a, in structure, it just falls apart completely. Yep. Which is too bad. I, I thought it showed a lot of promise. And I actually, I you know, I was I was kind of ribbing it a little bit before, but I actually kind of applaud the concept of making a very formulaic comedy for women, but, you know, with an all-male cast, because it's yeah. something you don't see very often, and they could have done something interesting with it, they just chose they not just to. They just did not. Uh, well, our next film that we're going to talk about is our Criterion release for the week, which is also going to be my pick of the week, and that is one of my favorite films of all time. I'm so happy it's finally on Blu-ray. Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole from 1951. This movie... <laughs> he said in the hole. I did. Uh, also called, Also known as The Big Circus is a movie that serves as the perfect double feature for something like Citizen Kane. Huh. Because it's another movie about a journalist who is willing to step on everyone to kind of conquer the world, to basically, on the shoulders of other people, rise to a level of prominence that is almost godlike. And in this case, it's played by a booze-swilling, fast-talking uh, Kirk Douglas, who is just phenomenal in this role as a newspaper man who's been kicked out of basically every city in America. Uh, and he ends up in Albuquerque, where he's just at this rag papers, this like daily, like there's this tiny little town, but he's determined to basically regain his notoriety. He's been kicked out of towns for things like, oh, he slept with his editor's wife, or there was an issue with the facts of a certain thing he printed here. So he's been run out of all the big cities, but he's determined that he's going to find a story in Albuquerque in this tiny little podunk town that makes him a, a journalistic superstar again. And almost as soon as he makes this declaration, there is an accident involving a guy who goes into a mine to look for Native American artifacts who gets trapped. And it's kind of, you know, when he goes out, it's like this little tinier town outside of Albuquerque. And when he gets there, it seems like everybody's like, yeah, we'll, we'll get him out. You know, he'll be fine, whatever. But nobody's really making a big deal about it. And he comes up with this angle of like, oh, he's he's looking for Indian artifacts. It's a curse. This mountain is is cursed. You know, it's it's called the the mountain of the the seven. Oh, God, I can't remember the name. It's basically the basically the idea he comes up with is let's put out this idea that the mountain is cursed and that this guy is a hero and that we need to save him. So he creates this giant media buzz around this this man Leo who's trapped in the mine, and it's about. 
as much as it seems like the beginning of the film that he really cares about this guy, you start to slowly see how he manipulates the media and manipulates the rescue effort in order to milk as much out of the story as well, possible. It seems very prescient <laughs> news story. It re- that's the thing about this movie, is it's absolutely still applicable today. Hmm. It is about how the media will use people to get what they want, and it's like human interest stories are rarely about the humans they cover. Sure. It's a way to, to gain notoriety for the journalist, and this is a great... So ba- the, the thing that he does is that... You know, for some reason, I, I haven't figured this out, but again, this is the 50s, so maybe it's just a different time. But all of the – since he drums up all the interest in the story and people are coming out there because of him, the uh, the technicians and the engineers are coming to him for like, what should we do? How should we – we've got these two different plans in place. We could do it this way. We could drill that way. And he decides on the, he decides on the effort that will take longer. And he does it entirely so that he can keep milking this story. Until his plans are foiled by a kid with a strange jacket named Calvin Klein who shows up out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, and then all is lost. But yeah, this is just, it's a really interesting movie about kind of the the dark nature of ambition and the very spurious relationship that the media can sometimes have with the truth if there is something more valuable on the line and... It's it's and it's so incredibly well shot. I mean, it's a Billy Wilder film. I don't know why you would expect it's anything. One of the great directors. One of the absolute greatest directors who ever lived. And Kurt Douglas's performance is second to none. I absolutely love this movie. Uh, it's a movie that reminds me a lot, actually, of uh, There Will Be Blood, about a, a tycoon who is just will stop at nothing, at nothing to get what he wants, and huh. just kind of where that ultimately leads. And I I love this movie, I, and I think it's so great that. Criterion has has put this Blu-ray out. And one of the things that I really love is, you know, with Criterion Blu-rays, oftentimes we get these insert booklets yeah. uh, that have a lot of, you know, useful information about the film or they'll have an essay uh, either by Martin Scorsese sometimes. Oh, or it's, is it a newspaper It's style? a fucking newspaper. They fold out newspaper? That's awesome. It's a fold, like the insert is a fold out newspaper from the Albuquerque Sun Bulletin. And all the information you would get in a booklet is now... In this newspaper, with like it's laid out with pictures and everything, just like a newspaper. I love would be. Criterion. It's it's one of the greatest supplements I have ever seen Criterion put in a Blu-ray. And this is packed with supplements. Of oh course. my gosh! Of course it is. This this is one of those things that Criterion like they knew right away that with a Billy Wilder movie they'd better go whole hog. It's and they, odd they got Spike Lee to do a thing on here where he comes on and talks about why he loves this movie. It it is a little odd. It is a little odd. And of course this is a new 2K restoration on top of everything, on top of all the supplements. Top of the insert, on top of the great... It's it's a 2K restoration of the film that looks absolutely gorgeous. Hmm. Um, highest, highest... If, even if you don't buy the Amazon, the uh, Criterion Blu-ray, definitely seek this movie out and watch it. I'll have to do that. I did not get sent this, even though I asked for it. Phenomenal <laughs> film. Love it so much. My pick of the week. See it. That's I, I don't want to say anymore. I don't want to spoil anything. But just just see this movie. It's It's one of those movies that's important to watch, to understand the history of cinema, and the fundamentals of great filmmaking. And now the rest of our titles, which will not be as good as this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I kind of... Uh, what you do stacked you... the deck, right? I did. I stacked the deck a little bit. Sorry about that. Moving on from Ace in the Hole, you know what? I'm going to move on to another film that was really good, and that is Home of the Brave. Home of the Brave was indeed really good. I had never heard of it. Actually, my girlfriend Courtney had told me, you've never heard of Home of the Brave? I hadn't like, either. I missed a lot of stuff. I don't know what to tell you. This is a 1949 film based on a 46 play uh, that that changed the the controversial character from what well, didn't change the movie changed it originally it was a Jewish man and then it was, ah and then it was a black man in the film interesting 
Uh, but this, despite being, you know, marketed as very much a war film, and there is certainly a large part of it that are aspects of the paranoia and the claustrophobia of being in the bush surrounded by enemies, ultimately this is a film about race issues. Yeah, it's a socially conscious war movie in, in 1949. Which is really interesting to me. And it's a flashback story, too, because right at the beginning of the film, you know, they tell you the, the, the black soldier in question is uh, he's paralyzed but for psychological reasons. Uh, and they he can't remember anything that happened to him. He has totally amnesia. But basically the mission that happened went terribly wrong. Some people didn't come back. Somebody didn't come back. And you don't really know what happens. And immediately it goes into a flashback showing, OK, let's go back to the beginning where uh, – a bunch of soldiers are asked to volunteer to go to this island that the Japanese have control of, but to go around the back of it and sort of survey to see if there's a place they can land planes and boats on, right. basically. They're um, still going into the lion's den, but yeah. hopefully through Sneaking the back around door. the back so they're, <laughs> they're hopefully not uh, acknowledged. And kind of the leader of this group, per se, is played by Lloyd Bridges. And if for no other reason that he's the most charismatic, he's the one everybody seems to like. Uh, and when the first person who actually volunteered shows up is this black soldier, there's some amount of like, uh, there's one guy who's actually like, I don't want to work with a black guy. Lloyd Bridges is like knows this guy. They went to high high school together. They own the same basketball team. They were genuinely friends. But as things go along, it's clear that you know every the more this one guy is blatantly racist, you know the more you know the the black soldier is like I don't trust any white people. Even this guy who is absolutely doing nothing but trying to be my friend, I don't really even trust him. Right. And the movie doesn't oversimplify things. Is one nice thing. There's a lot of complex things that come up in the relationship at that period of time between white and black men. And I think you you touched on something really interesting that I don't see in a lot of movies like this is how the racism lobbed toward the black character creates a, a hardened heart and his own racism against the people that are racist to him. So it it kind of shows the the self-perpetuating nature of racism yeah, that was, I feel like is a topic that's not discussed enough in these type James of It was James Edwards is the actor who plays the black war veteran Private Peter Moss, who they just call Mossy is yeah. his nickname. But um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on uh, very close to the surface here. Uh, he also was known for being in Stanley Kubrick's The Killing and John Frankenheimer's The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, so, like, a pretty experienced actor. Killing is one of my favorite film noirs. Absolutely oh, it's, brilliant. Oh, it's terrific. Uh, he he had a good run of films, and this is one, like I said, I had never seen before, but really, really, really enjoyed. It's is genuinely tense watching this film. I mean, I, I found myself, like, there's moments where they're stuck in the bush and they, you can hear sounds. You're not sure, is that a Japanese soldier? You know, it's certainly racist in the sense that they're all calling them Japs and stuff and uh, yeah. what have you. But that was, you know, I mean, it was 1949. This movie came out and, yes, there was some understandable prejudice against the Japanese at that point uh, because we were at war with them. <laughs> uh, I yeah I I would say this is a classic that most people don't even know about that you really want to seek out. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Now this has come out from Olive Films, who do good transfers, but that's it. They just put out. They've been lately putting out like getting the rights to all sorts of like lesser known but still pretty damn good films. And uh, the other one I this week is uh, Flying Tigers with John Wayne, and you know it's great, but where's the bonus features? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, it's just the movie. But honestly, I don't know where else you're going to see this right now. And I really think it's completely worth uh, checking out. The director 
started his directing career working with Val Luton on RKO horror, RKO horror films, and the whole thing has a sort of like Val Luton horror claustrophobia sense to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very worth much worth your time. Yeah, and and that's the thing is like the transfer is not super great, but I think it's just because this is such a forgotten film that there probably aren't a lot of great elements left to work with. True. I mean, it's a decent transfer, but you're definitely going to see a lot of noise on some of the on some of the scenes and and things like that. And and it's just because I think there's there's just not a good looking print of this left, so they worked with what they had. True. Well, moving on from Home of the Brave, we are now going to talk about Stalingrad. Boy, we're going with the war movies this week. Yes, we are. Uh, Stalingrad, there have been many films called Stalingrad, some of which are incredibly, incredibly long and really dull. Much like the Battle of Stalingrad, <laughs> except not dull. Not dull, <laughs> Maybe numbing would yeah, be the right word. But uh, this version just came out in 2013 and is, in fact, a Russian uh, war drama. The about- first Russian film to be shot in IMAX 3D. Yeah, that is true. Now, I, I so actually might watch this again at my friend's house with a home 3D projector, because I kept reading that the 3D on this is fantastic, that they did a great job with it. And you're right. When you watch it in 2D, it's distracting. Like, they they do so much slow motion in this movie, which I'm sure in 3D helps to kind of serve the visual aesthetic and, and all that. But they did it so much in this film at scenes that were supposed to be really emotional that it kind of made it really silly. Yeah. And again, I think that's just I think that's just because it was meant to be seen in 3D. Yeah, quite possibly. Hard to say until we've seen it that way, but right. I kept reading good reviews about the 3D nature of it, so may have to watch it again. Uh and this of course takes, you know, it's not telling the story of the entire battle, endless battle Stalingrad, which was ar- arguably the decisive battle of World War II. Right. You know, uh certainly one of the very top like you know, biggest battles of World War II. If you add up all the casualties, you know, outside of Germany, if you add up all the casualties from all the other participating nations of World War II, they still don't add up to the casualties Russia of Russia in World War II. Yeah, and this Insane. is when Germany was trying to invade Russia, and Stalingrad is where, you know, basically they finally, you know, at great cost, held them off. I mean, continuing the tradition of when people want to conquer the world, you generally hit your stop point somewhere in the middle of Russia. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, I really have this theory that George R. R. Martin's the wall, yeah. you know, where the, where the, uh, the, the, the night's watch is, yeah. is based on Russia all throughout history. It could be because it's literally the, the line where it's like, yeah, I dare you. Yeah. I dare you to come over here. It's the line drawn in the ice. Exactly. Um, and this, rather than trying to do a summation of the whole battle, uh, focuses more tightly on one particular group of soldiers who are holed up in a old building. And then one German Nazi officer who has fallen, I don't know if in love, has gotten sort of obsessed with a Russian girl. Has taken into captivity a Russian girl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And one of the... He actually has a very interesting character arc as this movie goes along. And her... Despite the fact they share no words in common, he's basically forcing her to have sex with them, and he's bringing her food and keeping anybody else from hurting her. And the decision she has to come to at some point with, like, is it better to go with this guy who I despise everything he stands for or to go back to my own people who will probably kill me for ever having anything to do with this guy in the first place. It's a tough call. Despite the fact the choice was out of her hands. Yeah. Um, But the real stories about the guys hold up and the Russian guys hold up in this building and how they all in their own way fall in love with a a 19 year old girl, a survivor who is there with them and their sort of relationships to her and how that, that wanting to protect her kept them going and gave them the strength to 
to just keep going and, and keep pushing ahead and survive during this impossible situation they were in. And I actually found this incredibly involving. Yeah, I wish I could say the same. I, I found it to be kind of a chore to get through. And again, I think a lot of it has to do with just kind of the tonal imbalance of seeing something like, you know, an innocent woman and her child burned alive in a school bus in like super Zack Snydery slow motion. It was just like kind of like I was like, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be feeling right now. Like the, the visuals and the tone it was trying to strike, I think, were at odds at certain points. Um, and I, I liked a lot of the Russian soldiers, but like a good example would be like w- w- the scene where the German officer rapes that girl is also in super slow motion. And I'm just like, really, you're going to play up the 3D now? That seems a little weird, <laughs> but okay, sure. Why not? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not a bad film per se. It's just, it's one that didn't quite hold my attention. Didn't quite grab me as much as it did you. Um, uh, but again, I would like to see it projected in 3d well let me show you where this film touched me brian oh no 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 put pull your pants up pull your pants up that's okay i, I believe you i no, promise I, I found it to work because i always love films that deal with uh sort of like the inherent self-sacrifice and nobility of the human spirit and this is a film that really is ultimately about even in the midst of the worst of people and the worst of things going on these men who are just average men like finding that nobility within themselves. And I actually always kind of find the thing kind of inspiring. I thought that although, yes, there is an overuse on slow-mo, the, uh, you know, for a Russian film, it's got excellent effects. I mean, there's a lot of like major destruction in this film that could not have been cheap. The city of Stalingrad itself looks fantastic. I mean, obviously that's not real. That's a CG digital reconstruction. How do you know but, that? Yeah, because they put... It was cheaper to build a time machine. <laughs> um, there's a scene where a bomber flies right past their window on fire and explodes. It just looked terrific. Yeah. Uh, I was really, imp- I, I felt really impressed by this. This is a Russian giant, like Titanic, as it were, effort. E- yeah. Effort, and you know, it's nice to see Russia kind of like getting into the game. Really, yeah. <laughs> it's about time, Russia. I mean, come on, man. Well, you know what I mean. It's like they've had a like they've been deeply involved in film almost as long as we have. Um, it's just obviously economics were a little bit different, but uh, there have been some good Russian films. But this is you know <laughs> in Soviet Russia, movie watches you. How many how many blockbusters can you think of that were made? And I don't mean that sold in America, but even blockbuster style films that came out of Russia. There's like Night Watch and its sequel, and the, and and the third sequel, which never happened, I guess. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Night Watch and Night Watch looks like an independent film compared to this. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's definitely a lot cheaper than this is. I, I don't know. I, I enjoy this. I found this very accessible, even though there are parts that are clearly from a Russian viewpoint that don't, it doesn't really, like, there's things where, like, they shoot a guy for being a traitor, no questions asked, cause, because he didn't do his job, and, and no, that's never brought into being a moral issue, and apparently it's because, from the Russian mindset, it's like, well, yeah, of course you shot him. He's yeah, supposed to do his job. There's that great scene in uh, Enemy at the Gates where they show the Battle of Stalingrad, and... That's a great movie. It's a fucking phenomenal movie. It's very underrated. Where the there's Russian soldiers running away from the battle, and there's just Russian generals just standing there shooting every single person that's running away. Their own men, like, depleting their own ranks because yeah. these guys are running away. So I guess I can kind of understand how they how they view that kind of uh a little differently codism. than we do a little differently yeah I mean, there's we'll, no trial we'll put you on trial and yeah. you may very well get get yourself killed maybe <laughs> but you'll probably just be stripped of your rank and dishonorably discharged but you had it coming you son of a bitch you son of bitch son of bitch anyway Are those blue jeans <laughs> I give you 50 rubles
50 rubles. Is that racist? I don't what's even the, know if that is racist. What's the strength of the ruble right now? I have no idea. I don't even know if they still use rubles. Uh, I don't know. That, yeah, I should probably know that, I but no I don't. I have no idea. All right. So that's it for Stalingrad. Uh, we've stalled long enough. Let's talk about Easy Money Life Deluxe. <laughs> that's really the title of this movie? Well, it's, a, it's the third film in a series. Right. But Life Deluxe yeah, is this one? I don't get it either. Life Deluxe sounds like some kind of package that you add to your insurance. This is actually the the third film in the Swedish Snabba Cash series, oh, which Snabba translates Cash. as Easy yeah. Money. Yeah, um, uh, that is made not terribly well known here. It was a huge hit of a series over in Sweden and through a lot of Europe. It was extremely popular. It was based on some very popular novels by a guy named Jens Lapidus. But uh, the one thing that we might connect with is the main star of the, at least the first two, Joel Kinnaman, who everybody knows from The Killing and various other things. Most and, recently, the RoboCop remake. Yes, indeed. And the idea is uh, in all three of these, these three characters with different goals and different backgrounds who all are in desperate situations and decide that they're going to take it, commit a crime to get easy money, as it were. But, of course, it's never easy. Everything gets complicated. Their paths totally end up intercrossing by the end of it. And it's a, it's a, like the original expression, it's a very good triptych crime film. Now, I never saw the second one that they put out. Um, I heard very weak things about it. But then mm-hmm. when this third one was coming out, a lot of people were saying this is where the series goes back up. Nice. And you will not understand a word of this if you have not, well, if you don't speak Swedish, obviously, but um, you will not understand what's going on if you haven't at least seen the first movie. It, it's all, it's those three characters back again um, and what's happened long after, even though Joel Kinnaman clearly had better things to do because he's barely in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kinnaman, where have you run to? It's like three stories, but one is just more of a footnote of a story. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like this well enough. I mean, it's there's a lot of films like this that have been coming out lately, and I don't think this is one of the better ones. I, I just, it's like one of those things. Like the first one, yes, every if you like this type of twisty, smart crime thriller, European crime thrillers, the first one is one of those you should put on your list. I really don't know if there's any reason to go so far as to see the the next two. Um, it's all right. It's. I don't even want to say, I didn't even understand that much of it. It wasn't until halfway through that I was clear on what was even fucking happening in this movie. <laughs> uh, and to get to the point to explain it is to give massive spoilers about what's happening. So I give it sort of a reluctant, sure, if you like European crime thrillers or not, watch the first one at least first. And if you like that, give this a try. Well, but, it's oh. funny because for a while, Scandinavia seemed to be like the new Korea in terms of crime cinema. Sure. I mean, we got things like Headhunters and, of course, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo Still good movies. stuff coming out of there. It's yeah. just, I mean, this is, the first one was such a huge hit over there. It's, I mean, in some ways, just like America. Like, hey, it was a huge hit. Let's make more of them. Well, yeah, and I'm not even so much talking about this, but have you noticed there's, it seems like it's gone a little quiet over there recently? Yeah, maybe they're taking a break. It's not, it's siesta time or something. Or is that Mexico? I don't, I don't know. know. I think they have like three months of darkness during winter. That or might be it. That might be Wait, They fight off the vampires. Yeah. yeah. Wait. I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors here. <laughs> You're mixing your film references. That too. Anyway, um, like I said, I, I don't even, I don't even remember enough after watching this to tell you much about the plot <laughs> at all. That's a ringing uh, endorsement. A bunch of people double cross each other. Uh, there's people trying to have sex with people they love, but they keep making terrible mistakes. The Serbians are evil. I don't tell you. It's... I think cinema's done a pretty good job of establishing that over let, the last few let, years. Let's move on. All right, moving on from there, we're going to talk about The Godfather 3. I thought we were done talking about Godfather movies, but 
Just when I thought we were out. Oh, uh, I see what you did there. It's Pull funny that this movie, here. which is is, I don't think it's right to say it's widely reviled. There's a lot of people who it's pretty widely reviled hate it passionately, and there's a lot of people who are like, "Come on, let's not get carried away." The Godfather Three is mainly hated because of the fact that it's nowhere near as good as The Godfather One and Two. But considering those are two of the greatest films ever made, that doesn't necessarily that doesn't make The Godfather Part Three a bad film. No, Sofia Coppola does. I disagree. I really cannot stand her performance the, the, at all. The worst thing you can say about this film as a film, outside of gauging it versus those two, is that she's bland. Yeah, I don't I, even think she's terrible. She's just bland. And she has that weird sneer she does with her right-hand side of her lip. And you're like, why do you sneer all the time? That is not sexy. Someone told her to play the role as Elvis, which I thought was odd. But that's, oh. that's what she went with. <laughs> no, you know what? I, I will say this. I saw The Godfather 3 at the absolute perfect time in my life to make me like it. And that was in high school when I was obsessed with mafia movies. When I was like, I ran through the first two Godfathers and I loved them. And I watched Goodfellas and discovered Scorsese and... Then I, I watched Godfather 3, and it was still like, oh, my God, it's like The Godfather, but there's, like, a helicopter assassination in this one, too. Which is pretty cool. So in my little, like, you know, lizard brain, it was like, not only am I getting, like, the arty stuff I liked about The Godfather, but I'm also getting, like, the like the shoot 'em up stuff that makes me that made me, I shit you not, watch movies like Mobsters with Christian Slater and uh, uh, what's-his-name from, uh, from Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, I can't remember. Patrick yeah. Dempsey, I yeah, think. Yeah, Patrick Dempsey. Yeah, so, like, that was terrible. That was, like, Young Guns with Tommy Guns, Young Tommy Guns. But this movie, Godfather 3, had those sort of, like, baser, more enjoyable, uh, slick action movie elements that were in some of the gangster movies I watched, and yet maintained a lot, uh, not all of, but a lot of sort of the more arty and more Machiavellian type stuff that I liked about the Godfather movies, the first two. And it has one of the most memorable lines in it from the entire Godfather series. Just when I thought I was out. Yeah, exactly. I I think this film's filled with beautiful cinematography with, uh, you know, with once again, agreed, not a great performance from uh, Sofia Coppola, who smartly went to behind the camera like her father instead of in front of it. Um, Not so bad as to, I fell ruin the movie. And everybody else in this is great. Al Pacino, once again, is the older um, uh, Michael Corleone, who's now in that position where he like, you know, when you watch these movies at the beginning, he's like, I want nothing to do. With this. I'm out. I'm a legit businessman. I, I love my father. I want nothing to do with it. But finds himself bit by bit getting dragged into it and having to make the same sort of decisions his father did that ultimately led him into being, you know, the Godfather. And here we see that's exactly what happened to Michael Corleone. And now he's trying to say, okay, like I'm powerful enough, I can quit, you know. And he finds himself in very much the same way, getting you know, sucked back into it because of the decisions he makes to try and save and help his family and the people he love. And yet those very same decisions to help and save people are what damns him. You know what this feels like to me is this feels like a really well put together piece of fan fiction (laughs) because it, it explores these really tertiary avenues of the original Godfather story. For example, the character of uh, Vince, who's played by Andy Garcia, who I, I think is – I think Andy Garcia is bland. I think Sofia Coppola is bad. But he's he's fine, whatever. Uh, but the character he's playing is the son that Sonny Corleone fathers with the bridesmaid at the beginning of the God- – like James Caan. Yeah, that is some like deep tracks trivia about the first Godfather. Yeah. Like, that's the kind of stuff they're exploring in this movie is like, okay, remember this little nugget that you learned in the first one? We're going to, like, explore that as its own story avenue. And it gives you the ending of the Michael Corleone story that maybe you didn't know that you wanted or maybe you didn't want at all. But it's, like, it's it's it speaks to me as something restless. Is like, 
I gotta know. I gotta know what happens to Michael Corleone and what well, happens to him in the end. It was wildly ambitious to make a third film so many years after the second one. No question. And I can't even say that it was a good decision to do it. I mean, I remember when this came out in 1990 and the amount of hype surrounding this could not have been bigger. I mean, it was as big as the when The Phantom Menace came out of like, you know, Every paper, everything was covering it, saying, oh, my God, there's going to be a new God. Well, and that makes sense, because this is the one franchise that completely, unequivocally bucks the sequel rule about sequels being inferior. Yeah. Godfather 2 muscled its way right next to The Godfather as one of the greatest films of all time. I even like the second one a little bit better. And a lot of people do. A lot of people absolutely do. So it broke that rule. Throw in Bobby De Niro. I mean, come on. Exactly. So not only were people excited because it's another Godfather movie, they were excited because the last time we got a Godfather sequel... It was just as good, if not better, than the first one. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you know, time has gone on. Coppola did not make a lot of great movies outside of Apocalypse Now and the Godfather films. It's unfortunately very true. He's like, as much as he's such a huge name, his career as a director has been spotty at, at the kindest. Yeah. But there's no questioning The Godfather 1 and 2 are both absolutely phenomenal movies. Like I said, the third one is just, it's nowhere near as good as those, but I still, I couldn't help but enjoy it for what it was. I think there's a lot of great stuff in this movie. There's a lot of mistakes. Was it necessary? No. And in retrospect, they probably should never have made it. But I still get a lot of pleasure out of watching this movie anyway. I mean, I rewatched it, and I find even like towards the end, the emotional beats really stick. Uh, you know, it, it works for me much more than it doesn't. And whereas it's, you know, it's not as satisfying an ending as The Godfather 2 gave us, it still, it's, you're right, it does feel like fan fiction, but really good fan fiction. It's just always going to be shitty by comparison. Why? What? So let me ask you this: What is the? Because I didn't get a copy of this new Blu-ray. Why is this being? Why released? is this? That's a very good question. Because the, the. All right. So do you remember the Coppola, Coppola restoration? I do. Set absolutely. And then almost immediately afterwards, they put out the separate Blu-rays of Godfather One and Two. Six never years three. later, now I think it is. They're finally putting out three here. I think it's just it feels like somebody just forgot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like well, fuck it. We got a niche in our schedule here. Let's go ahead and slide this out. So, I mean, is it at least in that same, like, Coppola Restoration series? Yeah, it's the same disc that was okay. in that set. It's just Really? Yeah, because you know how they always do that. They put out box sets, and then, like, six months later, they'll put out the movies in the restored version yeah. individually. So they just released the first two and never this one after yeah. that restoration. Exactly. Isn't that okay. bizarre? It's, it's, it's bizarre on so many levels. I don't, I just don't know of the person that is like, well, you know, the Godfather movies are fine, but I really only want to own the third one. I know. Who the fuck is this for? I think that's probably why it took so long to come out. Um, and for people who, like, I don't know, didn't realize that you could buy them all as one set, maybe? Ah, wait, I figured it out. This is for the OCD people who have lost in their restoration box set the disc for Godfather 3. Yeah. That's be. the only reason this exists. They scratched it somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and, in fact, this only comes with the, the director's commentary by Coppola. Uh, Which is just him apologizing over and over again. Now, now. <laughs> There are a lot of really great things in The Godfather 3. I think it is a solid movie on its own. Once again, if you hate it, I, I just wish I could tell people to distance yourself from your emotions and just watch it as a film that you can try and pretend is not even part of The Godfather series. Which is going to be real hard to do. Yeah, well, true. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I will say I don't hate this movie. 
But viewing it now, it's hard to recapture the enthusiasm I had for it as a high schooler. That's, well, sure. I, I will put it that way. Sure. In and the like, kindest way possible. Like, the worst way to watch this film is right after you watched the first two. Yeah. That's the like, worst way you can possibly the, watch this The next film. time you watch Godfather 2, wait like four months wait, and then like watch a, Godfather. Wait like a year. <laughs> <laughs> Not arbitrary at all, but wait a year, definitely. <laughs> Anywho, we're going to move on from Godfather 3 to Crocodile Dundee 1 and two. All right. Double feature. Say, I admit, I was completely charmed by the first Crocodile Dundee when this came out in theaters. I'm That's not a Crocodile Dundee fan. That's a Crocodile Dundee fan. I saw it twice in the theater. Wow. I, I, it was 1986. I was 16 years old. It was a fish out of water story with the admittedly completely fucking charming and funny Paul Hogan. I mean, there was a reason America totally fell in love with him at that point because it, this was a genuinely sweet and funny movie. It was a very simple story. It wasn't trying to do anything complicated. It was just a, a love story mixed with a fish out of water thing and it worked. And even watching it today, despite some aspects of like, that's a little racist moments throughout it, or that's really incredibly sexist, but okay. It still works as being really charming. Paul Hogan, who was also uh, the, I believe he actually wrote this as well. Yeah, he was one of the writers of this um, and was a, kind of a minor star in Australia, but this is the one that made him like a megastar all over the world for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just so likable. He's one of those guys you want, you would love to have a beer with. You're like, or man. four or five or, but not, oil cans. Not Foster's. That stuff is shit. <laughs> Unless it's really cheap at Fantastic Fest, and then we drink all of it. E even then, I'm like, well, no, I'll, I'll, I'll take something else. <laughs> I drink all disgusting. of it. <laughs> uh, it the, the idea being is this this female reporter for Newsday um, travels to Australia where they've heard this story about Michael J. Crocodile Dundee, who is a guy who supposedly lost a leg, leg to a crocodile and then crawled across the outback to get back home and survived. Well, it turns out the story is exaggerated and he's fine. He had a little chunk taken out of his leg, but it's Paul Hogan, who is this irascible, funny man's man uh, who takes her out. WWF superstar. <laughs> who takes her out on a tour of the Outback and they have a very much, it's very much a meet cute in the Outback as he meet teaches cute. her about it. Uh, they have some funny experiences out there. There's a really funny thing where there's poachers of kangaroos and he sets up one of the dead kangaroos and kind of holds a gun behind it and starts shooting at them and they're like, oh, the kangaroo's trying to a gun! <laughs> <laughs> Which is my nightmare, by right? the way. Uh, and then, of course, the second half of this, and more than half of it, is she's like, you know what? I want you to come back with me to New York City, where even though she has totally tried to hook up with him there, I mean, totally made the moves on him, not the other way around, they get there, and it turns out she's engaged to her editor, or practically engaged to her editor. The, the sleaziest, the thing the, that's the most like, what? Watching this again is that she, the whole movie is trying to hook up with Dundee and also trying to make this relationship with this editor work. And you're like, you're kind of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hard to like you as the female lead of this film. But Dundee, you know, it's him, like everybody just loving him as his, he brings his Australianisms to New York City and his simple homespun wisdom, as it were. And it does. And there's lots of great, I remember the first time I saw the, that's not a knife. That's, that's a knife. It was hysterical that scene, and you know the guy's wearing his the, the mugger is wearing like a Michael Jackson jacket. <laughs> you're like, okay, welcome to 1986. Yeah, uh, but it still is kind of charming, if not dated. Now this Blu-ray set comes with one and two, 
And two is not so charming. Two. I'm gonna I'm gonna hazard though, having not seen two or the third one, that it's probably better than the third one. I didn't even know there was a third one. Crocodile Dundee in LA? I had no idea until I looked this up on Wikipedia. I was like, <laughs> holy shit, there was a third Crocodile Dundee movie? For some reason, yes. There I think my theory is that that movie came out right about the same time people were discovering The Crocodile Hunter, uh, and Hollywood went, oh, there's an interest in Australia again? Fuck, put out another Dundee he movie. He must have been ancient by then. He's like in yeah. his late 70s now. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. This was in the in the late 90s they did that movie. Uh, uh, Crocodile Dundee 2 came out in 88, two years after the first one, and, uh, you know, did you know that the original plan was to do a crossover film with him and Beverly Hills Cop? Boom! That, that yep. is my mind being blown. Owned by the same company, and they were like, yeah, this would be great. Let's have the two of them. Both. I'm sorry, I'm not even listening to you. I'm writing a script right two now. Two fish out of waters and one water. Or awesome. one outside of water. Or two fish and one pond. <laughs> I don't... That was like an Australian accent while while using Canadian lingo. I don't know what happened there. Sorry Let's about put that. another Barbie on the shrimp. <laughs> um... <laughs> And this is the lamest excuse for a sequel where everyone just acts completely disinterested, especially Paul Hogan himself, who could not look more bored throughout this movie. <laughs> I mean, the first one, he's just so charming and likable and funny. You just want to be his friend. And this one, he just looks like he'd rather be anywhere but in this film. And you, you can't make it work without him. And the story has some lame shit where, like, the girl's ex-husband like gets murdered by drug runners from Brazil and, but not before he sends a film, uh, incriminating piece of film to her for some reason. And, uh, so the drug runners come to America and are trying to like kidnap her and Paul Hogan has to get her back, but then they get away. And so Paul Hogan's like, well, the only place we'll be safe is the outback. So then it's like a, a you know, a reverse horror movie where they're trying to track him, but he's like, knows everything so well. They're never even slightly a threat. So he's just basically fucking with them in the outback. So let me get this straight. The big gimmick for the sequel is that the guy who was from Australia and was a fish out of water of New York goes to Australia. Yeah, where now everyone else is a fish out of water. That's like that elementary show on ABC going, this week, Sherlock Holmes goes to London. And it's like, that's where he's from, goddammit. And it doesn't work at all. Ooh, a very brief appearance by Colin Quinn as an onlooker at Mansion. Take Poor Colin what Quinn. Will. <laughs> now, don't feel sorry for him. He has never done anything good. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying poor Charles Colin S. Quinn. Dutton is in this like playing Leroy, who's this badass pimp dude until like, you know, he's like, come here, you looking for a job, Mick Dundee? I'll give you a job. And Mick's like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do anything illegal. And he's like, okay, don't tell any of these guys, but I actually just run a stationary business. <laughs> it's like, this is all just for my rep. The girls like me acting like a gangster. But the truth is I just send shipments to office buildings of like pens and papers and stationery. Signed, sealed, delivered. I love that joke. I will I will say this. I will offer this about the first Crocodile Dundee. It represents the ultimate exploitation film. Now, if you, if Chris, you know me. You know how much I love exploitation movies. I do indeed. Um when they started out making exploitation movies, they started with these like crude and sex comedies and one of their most popular was a series of movies with a character named Basil McKenzie. <laughs> And Basil McKenzie was sort of the the ultimate uh, awker, which is their word for redneck. And he would go to, like, sophisticated London and just be a fish out of water. That's how exploitation got its start. Yeah. And then toward the end, what they were doing is they were trying to market more and more movies made in Australia 
to Americans and try to convince them that the characters, even the characters in the movie who were Australian, Australian were actually American. Hmm. So this is kind of like the whole everything comes full circle to where in the late 80s, when you see kind of exploitation dying off, you have a movie about a guy who's just an Aussie is such a fish out of water in America. And that's where the comedy comes in, that it's like the death knell for the for the entire subgenre. And I, that's really fascinating to me. Huh. I never would have been able to put that much weight into this, but I don't. I don't do anything else. Like this is my <laughs> life, guys. I'm. I, I have no free time. I say, you know, my summation: Crocodile One, Crocodile Dundee One, a, a cute, family-appropriate little film that's still going to be pretty dated at points, but ultimately is very charming still. And you see why America briefly fell in love with Paul Hogan. Crocodile Dundee Two, a tired retread that you can see why America fell out of love with Paul Hogan. And the third one is just called Sellout Back. Oddly, he actually ended up getting married to the woman who played his co-star in here, uh, and they had quite a long marriage until, I think, 2009, she left him for irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable. Um, and now he's in a battle with the, uh, apparently, from what I read, very corrupt tax commission in Australia who are trying to take him from, like, $38 million. Jesus. And he keeps winning cases against them, and they keep finding new ways to fuck with them. Yeah. Fucked up, man. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's got deep pockets after that whole flipper thing. but <laughs> and, I, and almost an angel. Yeah, that, that shit's going to run out. That's that's crazy. Leave the man alone. Leave Crocodile Dundee alone, damn it. He is a national hero for you. Anyway. You, you ain't got a lot of them. So. No, you really don't. So we're going to move on from Crocodile Dundee 1 and 2 to Special ID. Uh, well, you know, this is our Hong Kong kick-ass film this this week, and you can tell that because it stars Donnie Yen and it was made in Hong Kong. I love Donnie Yen so much. Uh, Donnie Yen is one of the greatest on-film martial artists working today. In fact, he has been since he first started working in the late 80s. He's spectacular. But it wasn't until just relatively recently that I, I feel like everybody else kind of figured it out and went, wow, who is this guy? Because of Ipmon, I think. Yeah, I, I think he's easily more talented than Jet Li ever was. And you can't really compare him to Jackie Chan because what they're doing is too – like, it's apples and oranges. Yeah. Um, but Donnie Yen is the lead in this just average martial arts film that has some really spectacular fight sequences in it. But nobody's going to put it on the same shelf next to Ip Man. Well, no, here's the thing. Special ID is like someone saw Infernal Affairs parked on the street yeah. with the keys in it and the engine still running and decided to steal it, chop it, and sell it for parts. Yeah, that's, per that's it, pretty much right. It has all of the elements of Infernal Affairs done in the cheesiest action movie way possible, but you don't care because it's just so much fun to watch Donnie Yen light people up. Oh, yeah, and boy, does he ever. He's he's even like, God, he's in his late 40s, early 50s, something like that, but that didn't slowed him down a whit. Not at all. Um, and here he plays Dragon Chan, a Hong Kong undercover police officer who's been work, doing it for a while, and he's deep within the ranks of a uh, under, uh, underworld gang. Um, but, uh, the leader of the gang has decided he's gonna, he's going to weed out government infiltrators in his midst. Uh, Chan is having difficulty staying here. He's worried about his mom, who they all know, and she knows he's undercover and for this gang, and she's kind of playing it off like, oh yeah, my gang son, I support you. He's in a dangerous place. Things get even worse when both the gang and his police bosses say, well, we need you to go to this other city with this guy you used to, you basically sort of like were a mentor to early on, has become a gang lord in his own self and is fucking with the gangs. And he's he's a, he's a piece of shit, basically. And you need to go and use your friendship to figure out what he's doing. And it's just 
it's a really needlessly overcomplicated plot at points with some pretty silly, exaggerated performances, but you're watching this for the fights, let's face it. And whereas I thought it kind of started off weak on that angle, once it started really going, like about 30 minutes in, it gets back into fights after you get rid of all the exposition, and it becomes a fun Donnie Yen vehicle. Yeah, and it's something interesting about the fight sequences to me is that um, they're well choreographed, but they're not overly elaborate. So there are moments of pure, like, survival instinct thrashing that mix with the more, you know, technically sound moves. There's literally a scene where people are just, like, pummeling. Like, like, it really feels like a street fight at points. And I love the scene where the female cop just kicks the shit out of that guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's a really fun little sort of, not really, a fight-ish between uh, Yen and the female cop who doesn't want to work with him and doesn't approve him, thinks he's just street trash himself, uh, and, like, fighting over an air gun. That's a cute, like, a cute fight that sort of develops this pointless little romantic comedy <laughs> aspect of this, but the fight itself is, is fun to watch. I agree. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a fun movie all around. Yeah, it's it's not... It's not, it's not one of, ever going to be one of the classics. No, and, and yeah. the plot is not especially well-structured. But you know what? Something else I really liked about it? The music at points in this movie is very reminiscent of the score from The Warriors. Huh. Like, there's scenes where he's walking down the street and just sounds like you're listening and you're like, yeah, it's kind of like, it's got like a, a hard rock with a synth-pop edge, like... Sounds very much like the score from the Warriors, and I'm definitely going to love that, so good on you, Special ID. (laughs) Yes, you will. Yep. Wait a minute. For the love... Why is the button out again? What are you talking about? Why is that button out again? I thought we threw that thing into the sea. This button? That button, yeah. That I thought we got rid of that thing. I don't. Finally, want... we answered the age-old question: button, button. Who's got the button? Yes, and now that you've got the button, and the answer is me. Don't push that button. I'm pushing it. Don't you do it. I love this button. Damn it! Ground control to Earth six sixteen. <laughs> Ground control to Earth six sixteen. We're ready to give our reviews and we don't care that you're not listening. <laughs> Bipedal. <laughs> Have the kettle on. I'm not going to go paraphrase the entirety of David Bowie's uh, song output, but that'll be for a later podcast. How about we just do his entire you know, early uh, mime and improv dance career? Sure. No. Wait, that's probably not going to work great over audio. Uh, yeah. Curses! Terrible yeah. in black and white. <laughs> yeah, you know, those mime podcasts just aren't as popular. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're trying to sleep, in which case they're great. Uh, welcome to the alternate Earth digital noise. Of course, I am alternate Chris. And I'm alternate Brian, a.k.a. Richard. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the titles that we got sent over here. And we figure there's no reason to beat around the bush let's just talk about scream factory and their their dual releases <laughs> starting with evil speak evil you know it takes a special kind of casting director to say to look at a bunch of people and say you know what i think clint howard is going to be our leading man for this one clint howard the ugly howard brother oh my god really like, he makes Ron Howard look like Mr. Olympia. And and the really special thing about this, even though he was only, like, 17 or 18 when he made this, he had a hairpiece. Yeah. He was going bald then. Yeah. That's, ter- like, this is... I mean, have you seen him when he was on the original Star Trek? Playing, oh. like, a little alien boy? He was, like, 10 or something. And even then, he was just a Hideous. monster. <laughs> the poor guy, because apparently he's, like, one of the sweetest people in the world. Oh, yeah. And he's very smart. You know, I mean... 
I feel bad talking shit about the guy, but I'm sorry. You're... But they deliberately cast, you know, they went for Revenge of the Nerds level ugly casting before Revenge of the Nerds. This is a spectacular piece about a really, really put upon guy at a military academy. And you look at him and go, well, he's going to get beaten up well, just generally. Like he doesn't need a reason. Like he could, he could be the smartest, kindest most intelligent. He could be the quarterback. People are still going to go, oh, God, look at that face, and just just punch him. Even I was tempted to punch him seeing this. I'm like going, I'm not, you know, I was a geek, and I think in the hierarchy, I would like, you know, I this is going to get me beat up less if I beat up this guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, go get him. Yeah. Uh, and, it, like, the movie itself has got this whole attitude, like, uh, well, you know, normally only rich kids come to this school, right? Because that's the way things should be. But apparently we had, we're forced to take this charity case. Yeah. You know, so nobody likes him except for the charity one. Charity case, basket case. Nobody likes him except the one black kid, which yeah. is really a non-point. Who may, who may as well be called Token. Yeah. Literally, cause... but it's like the ugly guy and the black guy have yeah. to hang around together because, you know, this is that horrible an establishment. <laughs> yeah, it, like, and he's barely a character, the black guy. He's just there to show, well, he's got one friend. Uh, Wasn't but... he in, was he in What's Happening or something? I mean, he's, yes. I guess he had a career beforehand and he did this film rather than go off and become a plumber or something. No, no, he was, yeah, he was a star on, on What's Happening yeah. and went to this and I think that that was about it for the acting career. That's so. dumb. Uh, but Stanley Coopersmith, Clint Howard, uh, is tired of being put upon and eventually when he's being ordered to clean out the basement of the, the, you know, the church, uh, uh, on campus, he finds a whole hidden room filled with satanic bric-a-brac and evil books. And uh, he decides, you know, as you do, that he's going to bring his computer down there, his Apple II or whatever uh, he it is. In fact, he steals the only computer on campus. Right. And takes it down into well, he's probably this... the only one using it, to be fair. Well, which also <laughs> raises this interesting question of exactly when in the 15th century did uh, Satanists start installing uh, power grids uh, into their chapels? Well, I'm pretty sure Satan and Microsoft ha are have a close allegiance. Uh, at least Apple and Beelzebub. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. But, um, yeah, so he's, like, trying to translate this book and do the satanic ritual so he can get vengeance against his many enemies there. Many. And he's, even then, he's a little incompetent. He can't quite figure out how to do it right. And the computer is literally scolding him for doing it wrong, you know. Human giving, blood? Human blood? Giving him an incomplete grade. <laughs> Uh, and I think that this is one of those films. I mean, it's very much a product of 1981 when Ooh, it came out. Yes. I mean, it's very dated, even a little offensive at points. But once it starts to the point, gets to the point where like, okay, now we're finally going to start having some horror stuff actually happening. It actually becomes quite a deal, a big, uh, quite a lot of fun. Yeah, because it it, it kind of romps along. It, it it's weird. It has this this flashback opening um, of a pre a. a Spanish priest getting uh, excommunicated and stuck Richard in California. Richard Mole. Oh, yes. Yeah, Richard from Night Mall, Court. Of all people, who <laughs> turns on the evil awesomely. Um, and you have human sacrifices, and then it goes, oh, no, we're in a kind of bad early 80s college comedy, um, which just gets 
really odd and super violent towards the end. Yeah, oh, really, like a super violent, like, like denouement here with him flying Stanley with a giant broadsword, you know, lopping people's heads off, which, by the way, as far as the makers of this movie are concerned, there's only two ways you can die. Having your head cut off or being eaten by giant ravenous pigs. Giant ravenous demon pigs. Demon Thank pigs. Thank you. There's a lot of demon pigs the, in this movie. Well, and one of the good things about this is Shout Factory, in their effort to, you know, give us the best quality product they can, they found the 95-minute cut. There's an 87-minute cut, which has most of the gore to it. I mean, it's still fairly gory, but it's not at this one. There's a lot of people being eaten. There's heads being crushed. Uh, and it gets... Towards the end, it does not pull any punches. No. This is, you know, Stanley Coopsmith, his demonic assistant, uh, you know, helping him fly through the air. And, you know, this is just carnage, hellfire... Some pretty. If you're Catholic, you may you may flinch at a bit of the iconography that's going yeah. on here because it it really goes. No, Satan is real and he will defeat the church in California. Which mm. you know, argument from Reagan. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's a really like it's fairly balls out in the last half hour. Oh yeah, I, I found that like as much as I was just kind of patiently sticking with it for the first hour, which is like it's still fun at points. It still has its things that are entertaining, and like I said, it's just. It's bizarre that anybody cast Clint Howard as the lead in something enough. That's <laughs> enough to keep you going. But, yeah, once it really goes full on out, it's like, wow, okay, here's the payment you get for sitting through the first half of this film, yeah. which is well worth it. In fact, there's some really fun extra uh, features on this as well, talking about the making of it. Um, there's an audio commentary with the producer-director, and then there is a uh, making of Evil Speak, about 30 minutes long, called Satan's Pigs and Severed Heads. <laughs> which is pretty much the, the, the plot. Yeah. And, uh, but I, the thing I enjoyed most was a uh, about 11 and a half minute with Clint, interview yeah. with Clint Howard, and he is really just forthcoming about everything on this and how, like you said, a lot of the kids on here were beating him up were method acting, so they were literally like pushing him around and talking shit about him <laughs> on set. And he's like, "What the fuck? What did I do, dude?" <laughs> uh, and but he was really excited to get to the end because apparently the harness they had him on, the flying harness, was the same one they used for Christopher Reeve and yep. Superman. So he was like, "Oh, like, oh, me a Christopher Reeve flying harness this is awesome." Uh, this is this is a lot of fun more yeah. than it's not. So. What's really what's really fascinating actually, and it proves how how dark and weird it gets is uh, in a lot of the interviews the cast all go. Oh, I started reading it; it was good, and then when I got after I'd been cast, uh, I read the end and went, "Oh, really? We're doing this? We're going there?" <laughs> so uh, you know, it gets points from a being fun. Uh, B being one of the first uh, horror films to, to use uh, CGI, not very well, not very, but well, it does but... use them. So kudos, points there. Um, and yeah, just and sticking the landing and going, being unapologetic about this is a horror film. This is not a, it's we're going to win, so we're going to walk away. It's like, no, no, this this ends in a really weird, dark place. And I'm like, well, uh, congratulations for doing that. It was a video nasty in Britain. One it of was. Ones that was it banned was. because, like, well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that more so than you generally see in almost any horror film is their actors on screen performing satanic rituals. Yeah. Like, I mean, Clint Howard reading out repeatedly prayers to Lord Lucifer. And, yeah. and you're just like going, this would make anybody who even, who came from any sort of, like, traditional background at all, like, religious, if they're religious or not, a little bit uncomfortable, yeah, probably. Yeah, a little queasy. <laughs> but, yeah, like, like I said, I mean, the fact that it goes there and says, well, you want a satanic horror? You've got a satanic horror. Yep. You know, just deal with it. Yeah, and the computer is not as big a part of this as the the 
posters would seem to indicate. Well, he didn't have much processing power. It's going to take forever to get anything done. Yeah, and he's, you know, like most computers and films of that day, Satan was too busy trying to create something visually cool-looking instead of just crunching data. It does have some great, great like, effects with, with uh, pentagram. You're kind of like, oh, well, that's pretty. Oh, Clint Howard's flying. I hope they set that nicely, otherwise his knackers are going to be in real trouble. And I wonder if you can get all that imagery as a screensaver. Oh, awesome. probably. <laughs> Inevitably. There's an emulator out there. I would totally get that. <laughs> well, funnily, actually, even though this isn't perfect, it's it's definitely better than Shout Factory's other campus-based, oh, campus-based yes. killer movie this week. Oh, God. Oh, God. Final Exam, oh. which also came out in 1981. Failing and, grade. Oh, my God. Is this one a tough one to get through um there were some weird decisions made on this film that's for sure the, and i don't mean weird in the like evil speak sort of like that's really entertaining to watch happen i mean weird in the like you know there's a reason we don't normally do this in slasher <laughs> films <laughs> it, it, it's it's kind of the slasher equivalent of, of shooting any other film out of focus Really. It's it just such a dumb, weird decision. You go, well, I admire your bravery, but don't. <laughs> uh, even though this starts off with a killing, with two college students making out in a car. who get Ripped off from Maniac. Yeah, indeed. Ripped a off. much better film. Oh, yeah. By significantly better. After that little intro, uh, it goes to Sleepy Lanier College, where it's final exam week. Students are... are Frenzied, trying to get through their studying and their final exams, thus the title, and are, are are slowly leaving the school. So the school throughout the movie is getting less and less populated for reasons so that they don't have to pay a lot of extras when you get to the final scene. <laughs> um, Was and, anybody paid for this? It, 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 of course, you right off the bat, you can tell who all the characters, the standard grade slasher characters on here. There's the slutty girl. There's the really nice, innocent girl. There's the nerdy guy who likes the innocent girl, uh, but has is a little too... Too arrogant to make it to the end. There's, there's, <laughs> there's the Laurie Strode ripoff. Yeah, clear Laurie. Wearing the same wig, um, and it it spends most of the film trying to be a sex, a really poorly done sex comedy. Yeah, you know, like no horror elements at all, except like every once in a while someone mentions, yeah, there have been some murders going on at other colleges. That's it until you get close to the very end, and the killer finally shows up. And he's nobody. Yeah. He's just some guy. Random dude. Random dude. Like, they toy, toy a little bit with, like, sort of those half shots where you're you're looking at him completely, but you're kind of seeing his face just from the side as if to indicate maybe there's something about this guy that's still going to be, you know, like a reveal. Nope, just some guy. Yeah. And, it, <laughs> and it, it's actually hurt by the Blu-ray release uh, because, they, you know, it's a good transfer. It's not the greatest because I don't think they spent a huge amount of money on it because it wouldn't be worth it. No. Um, but it's really clear from early on. It's like you can see him, and you're going, "No, I, I don't recognize him at all." Yeah, uh, yeah. And they try and play with some some Halloweenisms in there. Yeah, there's the, the score is a total John Carpenter ripoff. It's like oh, completely embarrassingly so. And, and, and not and like, not well. Who's done this either. dude? Who's this dude? Why should I care? The characters are annoying. Uh, the only good character was the sheriff, who was phenomenal. Oh yeah, who was this who, total like? I kept expecting Buford uh, Pusser to show up and start beating him with a stick. <laughs> he was great. He, you, know, you really should just fast forward to those bits. Uh, you should just also borrow the disc. Uh, this really, I, I know that shout, and we we love them dearly for, you know, really putting great discs out there, finding movies that need to be restored, reviving a lot of these eighties and seventies horrors. This. I don't know what the rush was, particularly yeah. in the week when you're putting out Evil Speak, which is you know pretty phenomenal in its own way and has a real cult. 
Nobody cares about this film. It's, no, it's, it's, it's dismal. The, the idea that it even has a small fan base, I think, is only from those people who are horror movie collectors who yeah. like it mainly because of how incredibly obscure it is. No one remembered it. And it, it contrasts really badly with another Shout Factory release from earlier this year, The Burning, which was a fabulous release and has that same kind of structure. There's, there's a murder at the beginning, then there's a lot of sex comedy, and then it just goes balls out and has you know this, this mad, long massacre sequence. Right. And that does it really well. And you put these two together and you go, this does it's the same things and not half as interesting. Yeah, it's just so bland. It's I can't believe that anybody there thought saw this and went, oh, this is what we should put out. But I think they're devoted to just grabbing all those things we remember seeing the VHS copies of at the horror store yes. in the 80s and, and put them all out one at a time. And you're going to get some winners and you're going to get some super losers. And this falls under the latter category. I don't even, so. I, that's the thing. I don't even remember this from from being from the time. Uh, it just everything about this is generic, second class, nothingy. Sorry, shout. We love you, but no. <laughs> well, talk this, this one. No. Talk about your dated things that are also failures. And I hate to say this, even though it's not a failure for what it, you know, the the what it is, but it's a failure for the way it's put together. Is the latest Looney Tunes Spotlight Collection? This is their eighth Spotlight Collection, hmm. and it is a blatant money grab and that's it. Oh, it's one of those like they've been putting out the gold edition sets, which are all like. There are no repeats on them. It's all like, this is the collection as it goes of every single Looney Tunes cartoon. So for people who want to collect this, why wouldn't you want to? Why have another parallel series that just randomly grabs from that gold series and and repeatedly, like, reissues? I mean, like, even among the Spotlight collection, there's reissues of it. And this is just, you know, I mean, yeah, there's great stuff on here. Bugs Bunny rides again, French Rarebit, uh, Gorilla My Dreams, The Harebrained Hypnotist. Uh, there's a lot, I mean, a lot of classic, classic stuff on here. But if you're interested in getting Looney Tunes cartoons, this is not the way to do it. Like, they've got five volumes, I, th- I believe, maybe more now, of the Golden Collection on DVD. And those are spectacular. Those are what you want to get. This is a quick money grab. I don't know why cartoon companies do this. Why they could put these random bundles together. And it's not just... With something like Warner's, I, I, I was really angry uh, at Cartoon Network when they put out this kind of random set of, of Adventure Time episodes. I'm like, oh yeah, there's no coherence. There's no, and you guys are putting the seasons out. It's you know you're gonna, and it's it just feels like weird double dipping. There's probably something on here that's super obscure that they know they're gonna be able to sell to people, or they're gonna dump it at Walmart. And it's like you know, respect your audiences a bit. Yeah, and there's know? nothing obscure on this. They're all on previous sets. Really? Yeah. That- every single thing on here is on a, volumes one through five. So it's like there's no reason to get this at all except for like I only want one Looney Tunes thing just to have it and they've got it five bucks at Walmart or something. Yeah. You know, and it seems to me this is part of that sort of thing where it's like this is something to have in the checkout shelf where the kid will go, oh, mommy, I want that. Just like, you know, every other cartoon show. Yeah. Like, it'll take them over a year after, like, the the series, a series is over, sometimes longer, to actually put out this is that season. Yeah. Because they're too busy putting out six-episode sets on DVD. <laughs> but I think people increasingly are going, no, I mean, I'd love to see the breakdown of... of- what the economics is on that because it can't be good. No, no, it it's just, can't. Be. It's just money grabbing, and I think it uh, you know it probably stops people from going and going. I'll go, I'll go get the box set when it comes out. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something that is really good, and that is After Tiller. 
Now, bit, this a bit is, of a change of tone. Now, this doesn't have the light-hearted exuberance of Looney Tunes, no, mind you. No, uh, <laughs> I mean, unless you find a, a third term, uh, third trimester abortions just hysterical. Yeah, which who could blame you? They're just <laughs> funny. <laughs> let's face it. <laughs> Fetus, don't fail me now. <laughs> Please send all letters, complaints too. <laughs> Uh, it is a 2013 documentary that follows the only four doctors, there's only four doctors in the United States who perform late-term abortions. And and the title refers to George Tiller, who was a doctor who was sort of like the, the, the patriarch of this group of doctors, really, who was murdered in 2009 in fucking church, of all places. Yeah. Um, and this is not a film that's waving a banner above it of saying, like, this is why you should be angry about this and why pro-choice should be the only choice. It's really just a kind of a character piece looking into all these people who are in, you know, this incredibly dangerous position, this controversial position, who even themselves have doubts about what they do. So some of them anyway. Yeah. Uh, and it just kind of looks at all angles of what it's like to be in their world, you know? Uh, and I found it absolutely fascinating. Oh, yeah. Um, it... What it does really well is it takes the politics out of the room and just says, when people come to them, this is the last moment for them. This, you know, they are, they're saying, look, I need an abortion, not just because, you know, I didn't want to get pregnant. You know, those generally dealt with much earlier. Yeah. They, these are, you know, women who've been raped or, you know, the baby has developed to a point where it's clear it has no brain. Yeah. And that's one of the cases. Like, they, you know, the child is missing huge chunks of the brain. And these are, you know, the majority of the people they talk to who are all shown, you know, either in, you get slight views of them. You know, yeah. Nobody's, nobody's exposed. This is very sensitively done. And these are personal tragedies. These are people who are put in a position where, you know, often they, they want the child, but, it's just not tenable, or the you know the fetus is already basically dead. Yeah. Um, or one woman who yeah she was raped and and she was in denial that she was pregnant, and uh, that you know they never have to explicitly state why would you put a woman through this? Well, why would you force her to go through this? And this is a personal tragedy. And the images of of you know the campaigners who are obviously you know they mean well, but to stand there and shout abuse at somebody. You don't have to say that's wrong. Yeah. You know, you don't have to point out, okay, why are you doing this? Do you think this is really helping these, these anybody in this discussion? Uh, and, you know, the, when they do talk about the tactics that they use, like trying to force uh, landlords to cancel um, tenancy agreements with these doctors. And, the, and the, you know, there's a great bit where one, where one of the landlords goes, no, yeah. no. Absolutely not. It's like you should have looked in my background. My dad was an abortion doctor. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> get the hell out of here. You know, this is this is an essential thing, and it you know it points out that this is you know, third trimester abortions are you know painful. This is incredibly unpleasant in every way, and and I I think that like the film does a good balance in that it spends the first half of your dealing with your patients with these people who it breaks your heart for. Like there's this woman who wants this baby so bad, but they're telling her that like all its bones will break even if you pick it up. 
Yeah. You know, like just holding your baby would break its bones. It's got this disease that's going to kill it, if not stillborn, then soon after. And she's just falling apart, talking to the doctor, and the doctor's falling apart listening, and it's like just heart-wrenching. Yeah. But then later on in the film, it starts showing some people going there who were just being irresponsible. Yeah. You know, and you're like... It does have the argument. It's like maybe there needs to be a little stricter controls on, like, you know, who can do this. I mean, it doesn't flat out say this should be available for everyone, this film. It's like maybe there should be some people whose job it is to go in there, like psychologists whose whole job it is, is to determine whether or not, you know, this is an acceptable case for late-term abortion. Well, and that's part of what they what they do is actually, they get, you know, they are... The question the is whether, of last resort. The question is whether or not I, I found, and I didn't think if there was a problem with this, I don't think they ever asked this, and I, it's a question I wanted to know: Why are these people qualified to make that decision? They're, yeah. they're physical medical doctors, not psych, psych, psychologists, and it seems like they should be talking to a psychologist to make there someone trained to make that decision specifically, trained in both the the, the specifics of the law and in the human psyche. Because there was like there was this one woman in here who was just like, "Nope, I'm not going to have it. Not going to have it. Sorry." I just, I just changed my mind. I don't want it. It's like, I'd be like too fucking bad. You know, <laughs> you're at like 29 weeks and uh, you didn't do anything because you're just irresponsible and you drank all the way through your pregnancy, but there's still no evidence the fetus is damaged. Yeah. It's like, you know what? We're considering bringing criminal charges against you for behaving that <laughs> way, but you're not going to get an abortion. <laughs> I like no sympathy for somebody like that, but you know, a lot of these, I mean, it does make very clear, like, to say blanket statement, there should never be late-term abortions is just irresponsible and, and as uncompassionate as you could get. Yeah. But this is, this is a deeply moving documentary. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's heartrending. And I think it, it's one of these things where it's not going to change some people's minds, but, but they'll I think never we've got, see it in the first place. Yeah. The I think problem. that's the thing. They, the, the discussion isn't being had. And what it really reinforces is that, you know, America is relying on four people to do these these uh, these late term abortions, and then you think, well, how few doctors are performing first and second trimester abortions? And you suddenly realise, like, something happened. It doesn't have to explicitly say all this. You think something happened where this medical procedure is being stamped out, and how many people are, you know, how many of them are there because they couldn't get an earlier abortion. Because somebody said no, and yeah. this is all they've got left. And if you you haven't got, if you only find out you're pregnant in the third trimester, which is, you know, quite uh, second trimester, which is quite common for some sure, women, they sure. don't realize because they still have light periods. You know, what are they supposed to do at that point? If you if your doctor says no, if you live in you know Kentucky and your doctor says no, and the next doctor said no, you know that trimester disappears quickly. Well, you know, so it's a, you know it does point out this is, you know a huge problem which is being put on a handful of people. The fact you can interview every single person doing these procedures yeah. is astounding and frightening. Yeah. No, very much so. <laughs> That's uh and I'd be I would have been curious to see a film about sort of yeah, you're right about the rest of what's going on or the film even this even get into it. What's going on with the rest of the world as or the rest of the country as far as like earlier than late trimester abortions. Yeah. Like how fast are those numbers dropping? But uh, unfortunately, it never quite gets there. Uh, this is still absolutely excellent film. It really is. It's just heartrending, and it never, I never felt like. I mean, although it's clearly pro-choice, it never becomes like a placard holding pro-choice. It's just like it really just wants to show you and hoping, praying that somebody out there who hasn't made up their mind at least yet sees this and goes, look, this issue is more complicated than it's being presented to you. You really need to see inside the world of these people to understand 
how complex it really is. And there's a good deal of special features on this as well. Uh, uh, there's an interview with the directors, Martha Shane and Elena Wilson, talk about the origin and production of this documentary. Uh, there's an interview with Dr. Susan Robinson, which uh, elaborates on topics touched on the film. Uh, she's one of the abortion doctors. There's the Sundance Festival Q&A, an uh, older interview with Dr. George Tiller himself, uh, which, of course, is probably the best thing you want to see. It's very raw footage uh, of Tiller telling his own story for a 2002 documentary called Voices of Choice. Uh, so, And it's one of the only times you really – you don't really get to see him speak very much at all during this actual documentary. It's no. all just the idea after Tiller. It's in the wake of his death. So uh, I really, really highly recommend this. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. yeah. Yet again, great release from Oscilloscope. And as long as we're talking about documentaries, let's talk about Generation Iron, which isn't dealing with as weighty a subject, but it is a subject about weights. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is a, a bodybuilding documentary uh, about the uh, Mr. Olympia uh, competition from, I think it's the 2012 uh, Mr. Yeah, Olympia. it's a 2012 it's, contest. Uh, basically, very standard format of following a handful of uh, contestants and you know how they train. Yeah, and these are weird-looking people. Can we get that out of the way? You, you, there's a moment where they show pictures of Arnold Schwarzenegger who for the longest time was considered you know the the, the ultimate bodybuilder, and he looks like he looks like Stanley Coopersmith from Evil Speak. By comparison, By comparison yeah. They've got to the point now where the, the muscles are so huge and so overdeveloped, they all look like dwarves. And I mean clinical dwarves because they're now so disproportionate. Yeah. They just look weird. It's really, really strange to look at these guys. Um, Even Arnold Schwarzenegger says it at one point during yeah. this. Like, it's just, there's a point where... It's just bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> but what I mean, it's it's very very much kind of pro bodybuilding as an art, a sport, and a science. It's unapologetic about that. Sure. So it concentrates on the characters and the individuals, and they're a really interesting mixed bunch. There's they're they're incredibly focused, and one of the things they do say is like you can't just go out there and. Just lift stuff and be big. This is about you have to be symmetrical. You have to have the right amount of, of muscle mass in one particular area. You know, the weird things you've got to do to work on particular things. You know, the, their diet regime, which is unreal. Yeah. You know, they're literally like, yo, you, you can go out and eat 7,000 calories, you'll just get fat. Even and, if you work out as much as we do, you'll just get fat. And even though it spends all five minutes on it pretty much all of them admitting yeah we use steroids oh, yeah. there's a lot of hype about it like being horrible but it's not horrible and a lot of these guys are clearly just in denial yeah absolutely <laughs> the science of this but they're you know they're saying it's the only way to get this big is to to use steroids to help as part of it but if you just use steroids it's not going to do shit for you it's like yes but that doesn't mean that steroids aren't still going to be absolutely horrible for you yeah and it's interesting that one of them keeps ripping his hamstring and it's like well yeah, because you're not necessarily building good muscle mass. You're building muscle mass, but you know it's what the re- you know pro wrestling went through in the in the eighties with the steroid scandal. People, the reason people were upset was one, it was causing some interesting shrinkage issues, <laughs> uh, but two, you know, you're getting injured really easily because it's bad muscle. Yeah, and uh, you know it's it was always interesting. You look at some guys in wrestling and go, well, that's going to shred in five minutes t- time, or you you know. They'd be in the ring and suddenly something would go ping and their muscle would shoot up their leg. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's not right. But these guys, you know, they are very serious about what they do. And it does treat them with a degree of respect. Great um, 
great uh, voiceover from uh, Mickey Rourke. Yeah, actually. Who just sounds like, you know, gravel and honey at this point. He's He, he was really into weightlifting himself during his period of not existing in Hollywood, pretty much. And, and his boxing period as well. Yeah. Yeah. But he's, you know, the, the main characters are really, really fascinating, including one of them, um, Kai Green, who... Who is the most fascinating out of he's all. He's basically a warrior poet. He's a really good artist. You know, kid, you know, traditional kid comes up from the streets, kind of story, and he's up against the, the, the big guy who's really in charge. I mean, like The narrative writes itself. Well, yeah, but the then idea, it, really, they, it really comes together at the end like that. The idea <laughs> that the, the guy who's previously won twice and wants to go for three times is totally full of himself. Total Everyone dick. thinks he's a complete <laughs> dick and egotist. And we see that, like, along the way. He thinks he's a nice guy. You know, I'm sure he is to the people he loves immediately in his life. I mean, he certainly seems to be really have a great relationship with his wife and what have you. But... Yeah, he like his whole attitude about this whole thing is like, look, I don't tell you, it's it's hard work, and any other way, that anybody, all this trying to use science to do it, trying to do anything else, that's all bullshit. I'm going to win because I'm the best. He's just one of those guys, and yeah. you kind of you want to see him get smacked down, but the reality of the situation is something different. Yeah, uh, and that competition really that that between him and Kai Green, who like I said is equally arrogant, but he's doing it in such a more sort of like like poetic way as you yeah. said he's just he's almost buddhist about the whole thing well I mean, that's the thing i mean all these guys are arrogant there's no humility there but i mean no. to to go out and say people want to stare at my body you have to be arrogant you know and they're wearing some the the you know there is a lot of shrink wrap junk in this film oh yeah be fully aware of this i mean they they are not pulling away from anything at all but it is kind of fascinating watching them pose and after all i've always gone i don't care about that but mm. watching them pose and watching them how they realize like okay if i do certain things move my arm in certain ways it's going to make certain muscles pop i mean they really they are artists of their own body and it makes that point extremely well and you kind of by the end of it you're kind of like yeah okay yeah i get into this this isn't you know this, this is a testosterone driven doc but there's still this level of these people are very serious about what they do and how they do it and why they do it. And it's not violent. There's no violence at all. No. Because no. they're all like, I don't want to get into a fight because if I get into a fight, I might, you know, ding a muscle yeah. and then I'm done. The only My violence at all is horse on man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those moments when you go, oh, this is right after this guy's talking to the camera about not worrying about having any injuries. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, watch his horse just violently throw him on it, camera. It really reminds me, if anybody's seen um, uh, Beyond the Ring, the wrestling uh, documentary, which is phenomenal. Um, it, it really has that same kind of feeling of, you know, taking these guys seriously and on their own terms. Uh, rema while remaining critical of them. Not criticizing the whole community, but saying, okay, this thing's going to exist, it does exist, the filmmakers obviously like it. Who are these people within that community and within that culture? And it does that extremely well. I, I did find it interesting in that I knew nothing about this culture, aside from occasionally seeing an issue of Flex magazine and uh, bookstores I'm walking by and going, ew. <laughs> it's like i mean and even at one point as some one of the guys go yeah you know i used to work out but i'd see those magazines and the guys covered with veins and be like that's disgusting i never want to look like that and it turns out this is really addictive because now i'm one of those guys yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but i found that like it was it is it's made by fans of this clearly and i thought that that 
hampered it a little bit. I mean, like I said, five minutes on steroids. Yeah. I was like, you guys probably, it would be more interesting to look into the darker side of this a bit more than you do. Because on the whole, it's kind of a puff piece about it. I mean, even the steroid use thing, the movie is trying to sell you on the idea that steroids is not that bad of a thing. And you're like, I, mean, I, I think they were probably doing that because most of the time you see bodybuilding covered in the mainstream media, it is just the dark side. Right. So they're like, do you need that again from us? And I can see why they go, okay, we've got to touch on it. You know, it's there, it happens, and... Yeah, I, and there is, a, there is a really interesting criticism by, actually, the, the uh, couple of wait staff at one of the venues <laughs> where there's, there's a, a bodybuilding, and they're like, yeah, no, probably a bad idea. And they, that, was, that was an interesting moment, and the yeah. way they handled that criticism was really interesting because they're fans of bodybuilding. They go, no, really, you know that that's all kind of weird water weight almost, but yeah, probably not right for you. Yeah, I, I found it a, a very interesting move, uh, film uh, to watch, but I was no more sold on wanting to ever watch a Mr. Olympia competition than I was before I saw it. No. I still find anyone who's that built up to be kind of hideous. Yeah. But, you know, obviously not everybody feels that way, and that's fine. If it makes you happy to be that big, you know, who am I to say no? Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, don't knock me over. Don't flex me. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm gentle and sensitive. Oh, and break like easily. A flower. <laughs> little petal. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, something going way back, and this is a back to John Wayne. John Wayne, ah. I can't do an impression of. Uh, uh, hello, Pilgrim. Thank you. Yeah. The, this is Flying Tigers. Now, this is an aspect of world pre-World War II I didn't even know existed. I had no idea this existed. When Japan was at war with the Chinese pre-World War II against uh, General Chang Shai... How do you say his name? Chiang Kai-shek. Thank you. There Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, the, they were hiring, basically, pilots from around the world to come out there and help them fighting, you know, the flying tigers, flying and, and taking out uh, Japanese patrols that were coming over China. And John Wayne plays an American who's over there in, in charge of one of those squadrons. I had no idea that was a thing. Yep. And it makes it kind of, you know, weird later when you see in response, like, because uh, there were a lot of Americans doing this. And when, uh, you know, Japan dropped bombs on Pearl Harbor, and they even play at one point the speech, the famous presidential speech <laughs> about it, like, totally unprovoked. I'm like, well, maybe not totally. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm not defending Pearl Harbor. I'm just saying maybe not totally unprovoked. Maybe maybe they 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 felt they had motivation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but um, Jim Gordon, that cracked me up, is the name yeah. of the character John Wayne plays. Unfortunately, there's no Batman here, so I don't know what to tell you. But he leads this flying tiger uh, unit in some really impressive mix mixes of of like uh, model use and actual flying new flying footage and uh, stock footage to make dogfights look pretty impressive huh. like pretty exciting uh dogfights and these guys are a bunch of bad ha- badass old hands they're really good at what they do and generally speaking they all come back from the missions this isn't like memphis bell where you know <laughs> every single time there's like another plane full of dudes that are dead this one at least in this fantasy of this they're 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 kind of arrogant and uh, when one of them does die, he goes out to get some more, and he hooks up with his old friend Woody Jason, played by John Carroll, who is like the you know makes the rest of them look humble. You know, he is so incredibly arrogant that like 
like we're just getting to the base. Like, well, you can't fly yet. You've got to, uh, you know, you got to settle in. We got to give you some basic training. And like, oh, we got to go. We've got a thing. And they all take off. And he's like, fuck that. I'm going and just steals a plane <laughs> on the ground oh, yeah. and almost dies because it hasn't been loaded with ammunition. So he's like flying at a bomber, like right on top of it. It's like, oh shit. <laughs> it's like dumbass. <laughs> to make it even worse, like almost the, the first thing he does when he gets down there is after figuring out who the girlfriend is, who's the, the, the head nurse there of John Wayne's character, he immediately starts just coming on to her like a bad frat boy. I mean, Ooh, like yeah. consistently. And you're like, this dude totally helped you out with getting this job. And the first thing you do is just fucking shit all over him in every way you can. <laughs> um, but it, the thing is, is that he's actually one of those guys who does look like he's a lot of fun to party with. And I guess that's one of the reasons you get that he and John Wayne have been friends since they were, you know, much younger. They have a lot of background between them and that. And, it's hard to completely hate him. And sure enough, this film is ultimately about the redemption of a guy who's always been a kid, never grew into a man. And finally, through self-sacrifice, becoming a man, learning how to, what it means to be a man, which is, of course, the most John Wayne plot that there is. <laughs> you know, John Wayne's already a man. Don't make any mistake. I don't think there's a John Wayne film where he's not already manly. It's just somebody else that Wayne has to teach them about yeah. manliness. And I did have a good time with this. This is from Olive Films, which has been putting out a lot of older films lately on Blu-ray and not doing extensive cleanup on them. They're just making them look just good enough for Blu-ray. And, and it was decent enough. It's a little rough at first, but it, it ends up settling into a more, you know, better than DVD, certainly, uh, version with very nice audio as well. I really enjoyed this. Um, it, it's not a going to ever, nobody, I don't think anybody ever looked at it as a classic, but it was a huge hit when it initially came out. I mean, it was a flag waver of a film. And sometimes those things can be fun. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our next one, which is the BB series. I can't believe it took them this long to put this out on DVD. Afterlife, season one only. Yeah, There's only they, two seasons. They don't mention that. It, wait, it's actually, I will correct you, it's not BBC. It's ITV. I'm sorry, ITV. Which, which is kind of a... Whatever, I live in America, same America. thing. America. <laughs> well, it is weird because I, uh, I haven't noticed, I am from the parallel England, uh, where uh, yeah, we're still over on clockwork. <laughs> Um, you wish. <laughs> and when you see stuff turn up on BBC America and it's like, no, that's on Channel 4. And it, it, it's really like suddenly some, you know, something from FX turning up on AMC and you'd go, that's no weird and that? awkward. I don't get it. Yeah, I've actually been curious why, you know, Channel 4 and ITV and people like that haven't tried to do their own channels over here like BBC America did. I, I think they probably just make enough money off selling the rights to BBC America. Right. And you're like, well, you know, it means we don't have to. I, I, I could see that they would eventually. But you've got to remember, a lot of stuff is is not going to translate very well. It's very provincial, I have to say. But this is a series that really does translate very well. And in fact, a couple years ago, when this end originally came out in 2005, would have been the perfect time to, to broadcast it in America as well. Especially in the wake of The X-Files, where this was a very... It's a supernatural show with a believer and a non-believer, except... It doesn't want to commit to whether anything actually that happened is supernatural or not, in much more so a way than the X-Files did, where yeah. the X-Files was like, no, it was supernatural. It's just Skelly is stubborn and won't believe it. This one kind of like, you know, is one of those like, okay, well, honestly, you can like about half, more than half the time, it seems clear there's nothing supernatural going on, or at least most likely there's nothing supernatural going on. And then every once in a while, the ball fa falls a little heavier on the, on the, mm, looks more supernatural. Yeah. But 
one of the reasons this is coming out now is probably because the lead skeptic guy in here is Andrew Lincoln, who is from, of course, The Walking Dead. With his actual accent. Yeah. <laughs> what he actually sounds like. Yeah, it was so weird because I watched the show when it aired and really enjoyed it. And so seeing him on The Walking Dead, it took me a while to get used to yeah. Andrew Lincoln with a with a southern accent. Like, what? Um, Allison Mundy, who plays this, uh, is the name of the psychic here, played by Leslie Sharp, who, by the way, is who Russell T. Davies wanted to play the next doctor that Matt Smith ended up playing. He really? wanted her to be the doctor. Huh. And when you look at it, look at her, you're like, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. She's got that doctorish quality. Here, she's a little more restrained. <laughs> this is kind of a dour atmosphere. I mean, not the least of which is the reason the skeptics hang out with the psychic is because you know, his son died not that long ago, and she claims that his son is talking to her, and he doesn't believe it, but at the same time, it's really hard to stay away. Yeah. I, this... Did it not work for you? It, it didn't. It, it's, it's a very long-winded sixth sense. It is very much from, like, looked like somebody saw the sixth sense and said, let's kind of make a TV and series. And it took ten years to do it, and it's... Kind of overwritten. It's over melancholic in places. Uh, it pulls a very cheap stunt at the end because they clearly thought they weren't going to get a second season when they filmed it, mm. and then they did, and they and they have to. So they have to kind of reverse in the second season. They have to reverse what it is that they did at the end of the end of the first, which is kind of like, oh, don't don't paint yourself into a corner you can't get out of readily. <laughs> I don't know. It just wasn't gelling for me it it's very flat the it's the same tone all the way through it didn't feel like there were any different directors you could put most of the episodes in pretty much any order i mean i'd like i want to feel there's some progression particularly because andrew lincoln's character is supposed to be coming to terms with the death of his son what that means and it's all that's just backloaded in the last of the six episodes yeah and it's like where's the 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 growth why is this a series, not just a handful of teleplays or something? I, I don't know. It just wasn't. I was like, eh, it's it's competently done, um, but it's like, oh well, here's the ghost of the week, and it didn't even have any fun with the ghost of the week, and then it would suddenly get really unpleasant. Now, see, I don't agree. The, four, uh, you know, the the kind of guy ghost yeah. who who was uh, choked in a bed which happens in the opening sequence so don't worry about it no spoilers <laughs> i'm like you you've created a character who's a complete monster in the murderer and it's not really paid off i'm just like well this stuff's happening and i don't really feel it's going anywhere and they could have had some real interesting tension because there is a kind of murder mystery aspect to several of the episodes and i don't really feel they played that up enough how the police are interacting with this, you know, possible psychic and this medium. Uh, and you compare it to how they handle Sherlock's interactions with the police, <laughs> uh, and they do it in like tiny scenes, but they're much better written. I just didn't feel this went anywhere. I just, I felt like this, and this is why I really enjoy this, because this is really a piece about both of these characters as opposed to the things that are going on around them. Like the, Andrew Lincoln's character, who is a, you know, a professor and a skeptic, he's, you know, confronting the paranormal intentionally because he 
like as much as he is arrogant and doesn't want to believe in it, part of him wants to because he wants to believe his son went on on some level. And I thought the way that the show explores that is at first muted, but very much there. And eventually when he finally gets to the point that he can start to confront this inside himself is why it happens a little later when they start, it starts coming out. Also found I liked the ghost stuff. I thought it was genuinely creepy, but still managed to have it where like they go, look, there's so many, it's the only show I've ever seen that actually portrays a honest skeptical portrayal of like how, yes, perception is incredibly flawed yeah. and, and humans, yes, can like anecdotal evidence is not evidence, you know, saying I saw a ghost. So I know doesn't mean anything to a scientist. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it, it's smart. It's well acted. I don't know. I mean, I, Alison Mundy seems like she's, you know, doped up through the entire thing. She's a little flat for a she while. Is, I she kind of you. picks up towards the end. I and I, I think she's supposed to be restrained, but yeah. there's a difference between restrained and flat. And she's like, I mean, it brings up the thing like there's fake psychics everywhere. This poor woman is an actual psychic and it's killing her. She, yeah. she would rather not be on some level, <laughs> you know. But again, that was and I think that she over, I think she overplays the the unhappiness of it to some point where, yeah, sometimes it's a little uninvolving, but I, you know, I've watched this all the way through to the second season, which is not included in the set. And it, they made some interesting decisions in the second decision season, especially the way the whole thing ends, which is like, wow, you've got some balls yeah. to end it that way. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, obviously we're on split decision on this one for me. I really enjoyed this and I was glad to see this finally come out on DVD, even though yeah, there's six episodes. Why don't you just put out a complete set instead yeah. of just season one? And they don't even say that it's season one. On the on, they just say supernatural. So yeah. I'm wondering whether there's some rights issue. I don't know. Yeah, you because know, why not say season one? Yeah, or do the complete. Well, thing. it that did. Uh, it really did in small print. Yeah, it just didn't print. advertise itself that way. Like if you had to look on the back cover to find out it's just season one. Anyway, uh, let's move on to something a little more heartwarming, and that is DreamWorks Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. Oh God. Now here's the thing about I suppressed this. memories of this. I never watched this because it looked like a movie for chicks. Uh, and now I'm kind of sad I never saw it, because aside from the really cloyingly terrible Brian Adams soundtrack, uh, I mean, it is bad. Tautology. So bad. Are you like, oh, Brian Adams, please just stop. I thought we had, like, some agreement with Canada. Um <laughs> Other than that, it's actually a very good film that uses, like, doesn't go the Disney way of having all these you know, anthropomorphizing these these horses to the point where they talk. It just shows a lot to their expressions and the way they treat with each other. And then every once in a while, they fall back on Matt Damon as a narrator who's sort of like this god narrator who can express things that are happening that they don't want to have the horses actually, you know, move their mouths to say, what have you. It's like, this is how the horse felt about that. <laughs> you know? Pody was sad. Um, and it actually is really beautiful hand-drawn animation. I mean, it's nice to go back and still remembering when we used all our movies were hand-drawn. Yeah. <laughs> it's really gorgeous at points. And this, you know, main stallion, the idea of him being like, he just, you know, you can't trap him. He's got too free of a spirit, you know, even, you know, as he deals with, you know, first, you know, Americans in the West who are, of course, the bad guys, you know, in the movie who, who, oh, you who, want, who want to break stallions. And, of course, Spirit not only gets away, but frees all the other stallions that they've got going, ah, fuck you, America. Uh, but, you know, later Native Americans who have more of a relationship with nature. Yes, they're still riding them and what have you, but it's more of a, you know, they try and present it as more of a, like, peace with the earth. It's more of a we're not going to dig our spurs into you and what have you. It's more of a... Uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not sympathetic, but uh, synchronistic. Uh, not parasitic, but... Oh, thing. The other thing that the starts with one. S that I can't remember right now. 
actually really enjoyed this. I think this is a beautiful film. It was the only traditionally animated DreamWorks film to be nominated for the Best Animated Feature Film Academy Award. Uh, and I, I do, in fact, recommend it. I'm, you know, like I said, if there was a way you could turn off the Brian Adams soundtrack, I'd say this would be <laughs> That's just true great. in all circumstances. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. Every time he starts singing, it's like the, I mean, even Elton John is cringing, you know, of like how corny these lyrics are. You're like, oh, for God's sakes, I'm free, free, the wind in my hair. <laughs> like, it, at least this is from a period where DreamWorks, I think, were really trying. Yeah. You know, this this was kind of an exciting period in animation because I think studios felt okay, we can go toe to toe, and it, it's not one of their it wasn't one of their bigger commercial successes. No, but like you said, it is really well done. It's really I, I think this was the same time where Disney did what was the horrible one they did with the cows in the barnyard in the oh. the old west? Yeah, I can't. I never with saw that Roseanne one. With Roseanne Barr, and like yeah. that was what they were doing at pretty much the same year, and, and DreamWorks so. go. No, we can actually out art. We can do Disney. something better than that. And it's like, so, you know, I think Kudos is a historical document as much as anything else. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is, you know, I remember it you know, just about from the era and it's, it's beautiful to watch. It is. And it, honestly, it's, it's even a little bit, I hate to say it, but inspiring if you're like an old oh. softy like me. Oh. Know, that whole, the spirit that cannot be tamed. I'm like, I don't know. Kind of still, the, the, I've got some kid in me still. That youth, there's that spark of fire that still remembers that. No, the man's not going to bring me down. Now, the man has, in fact, brought me down. That's obviously a provable fact at this point. But uh, there's that little flame that still remembers <laughs> and was moved by spirit stallion in the cimarron. Old softy. I know. I can't help it. Oh, so I got delightful. all weepy. <laughs> well, let's talk about our biggest title here. We've got, and this is actually my pick of the week. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, how could it be anything no else? Which is was also my pick of the year for 2013 of best film, which is Spike Jones's Her, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Amy Adams, Rooney Mara, Olivia Wilde, and the spectacular just voice of Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I like. I have a friend who hates this film, who's a really, really smart guy, like really nice, really smart, very cerebral, very like investigative of, of philosophy type things who despises this movie and i'm baffled by Why, it how can you hate this film i don't That's just weird and wrong i mean the the depth of like questions that this asks about our assumptions about love and relationships and what it means and does it really have any meaning uh it just i found it absolutely fascinating uh in here in 2025 the near future the, and believably so yeah. even though i tell you the fashion thing with people wearing tucked in shirts with no belts was just fucking killing me <laughs> i don't usually give a shit about fashion but that's the one thing that drives me crazy when people do it and i was like ah what on about well, it's, um, it's it's better than the single breasted suits in aliens yeah true there we go um but uh, Joaquin phoenix plays theodore twombly who is a very which is kind of, by the way, best name in, in cinema this year. Right. Uh, very lonely, very introverted guy who, uh, his job is he's a writer who composes intimate letters for people who, who have trouble doing that themselves to their loved ones. You know, uh, it's like, someone's like, look, I really want to apologize to my husband for something I did. And I just terrible with words. Here's what I want to say in it. Can you write it for me? And it kind of makes sense that by 2025, there would be a company that does that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and it just kind of adds to his whole sad 
life, really, when you're like, this guy writes about powerful emotions and expresses it beautifully for a living, but he has no one to express those things to himself. Because he's just got divorced or he's getting divorced. He's in the midst of, yeah, either in the midst of or just got he's, he's uh, the, divorced. He's in the midst of. Uh, to uh, his ex-wife, who is, who is not in this a lot, but has a very powerful scene when she is in that uh, in it um played by uh who is it who plays her again isn't it uh it's weird that she's not listed on the cast list here it's um uh it's rooney mara oh is it rooney mara yeah okay all right sorry uh yes you're right and they were sweethearts since childhood um and he just doesn't know what to do. And so he finds himself just out of loneliness. He buys a talking operating system, you know, the brand new, probably from Apple. Uh, you know. <laughs> Never explicitly said. But it, you know. yeah, there's well, like no, a... it can't be from Apple because he has the same phone for a long while and it doesn't break and like send shards oh, of glass into his fingers. That's true. Um, um, uh, uh, but it's got a, the idea is that it has a artificial and the first real artificial intelligence is designed to adapt and evolve. And he decides he wants to have a female voice. And it turns out to be Scarlett Johansson's voice who names herself Samantha. And sure enough, you're as a viewer, like kind of brought into this almost immediately the moment she starts talking because like the idea that you would have a computer that would really be imbued with that much personality and spirit, but still never makes any mistake about the fact that it is an artificial intelligence, that it can look at all your records, that it <laughs> knows what it knows about you because it has access to everything. It should be frightening. And yet it's kind of like, I, fa I found it quite the opposite. I yeah. found it like this idea of this person who knows everything about you and loves you unconditionally is you know, pretty tempting. <laughs> uh, and of course, Theodore, Theodore falls in love with this computer voice who, at, you know, that asks one of the questions you asked in the movie. The, the the voice, in theory, falls back in love with him. But what does that mean? This AI is, in theory, in love with him. But is it really? Yeah. Is it just part of the AI program? And it, as it, this evolves and the story goes along, that question becomes denser and more fascinating. And it's, I mean, this is... It's a science fiction movie at certain levels. It's a philosophical movie at certain levels. I mean, this is this is Spike Jones at his purest, most refined. If you have any love in your heart um, for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, yes. this is this is very what you much watch the same next. <laughs> but there's nothing in this that makes it it feel science fictiony. No, uh, except for the it, no belts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> anti gravity pants. Um, it is beautifully done at so many levels and this is a movie you will, you can watch again and again and again and like eternal sunshine you need to unpack this film because it's not just about definitions of love although that is a big part of it it is about long distance relationships it is about the meaning of existence it's actually one of the best discussions of what artificial intelligence really will mean and what are we creating? And at what point do we become responsible for their emotional lives? And can they really have an emotional life that interacts with a human emotional life? Because if you can process, you know, real-time process what's happening in the, in the heart of the sun, you know, <laughs> really, can you be a monogamous relationship with a, with a human? The, what does that even mean? And the fact that the AIs are asking these same questions. And that's when it stops being about, you know, is this a program? And you go, no, this really is a sentient organism. You know, is this, because it sounds like a human, is it a human? Is it something else? Well, I love how it kind of defines the question about what is love by saying, what would we think of love if we had 
this instantaneous access to all information in the world as it happened. All information was part of you. You knew everything there was to know in human knowledge and, and are current with anything happening at a given moment, that you were, in fact, immortal and endless. How would love be defined to a, a being like that? Yeah. And what does that mean in terms of, you know, like defining love altogether? Yeah. I mean, it asks a lot of interesting questions through the basis of being science fiction that are very applicable to us, but you could not ask in a film that isn't science fiction. And what really makes this all work is, A, you know, Spike Jones just gets better and better as a visual director. I mean, he's already phenomenal, but this oh, is yeah. really just... Uh, this know, may be his masterpiece yeah. visually. And, and I, you know, as a huge fan of Eternal Sunshine, to say this is better than Eternal Sunshine is hard. Yeah. But it really, this is just a... You know, th that makes I, it look like a... It's it, like a hair better in the sense that Eternal Sunshine is incredible to look at, but there's points that it kind of goes a little bit off the reservation. This is so tightly controlled, this yeah. entire film. Everything, there's not a bit of fat to trim from it. Everything, every shot in it is exactly what it needs to be. And the performances are all amazing. I mean, I mean the fact that you never see Scarlett Johansson at all. No. Uh, because there is no her to see. But it's the sexiest she's ever been. Yeah. Yeah. And the most moving. I mean, this is, you know, you feel that, you know, Samantha is going through incredible pain as she tries to work out what it is that she is. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix just kills it. Yeah. He is tragic. He is tender. Uh, doubly immense to see his performance in here after seeing him in the previous year as the master where he couldn't have played a more different type of role. Yeah. You know, this is an actor who's capable of, of you know, no one would call him a character actor. He's capable of carrying uh, the ball, a heavy ball, performance ball, in wildly different types of performances. And Amy Adams, who is unrecognizable oh, yeah. in this. She almost <clears> looks kind of, you know, schlubby and homely, which yeah. is like, how do you make Amy Adams like, look like, you know, his plain friend? Um, <laughs> I point out it, as well, the soundtrack by Arcade Fire with additional music by Karen O from the AAS is wonderful. Yeah. So good. So and I well say done. this as somebody who, who doesn't like the Arcade Fire. Oh, really? But yeah, I think they really, really knocked it out of the park. But I, I mean, I think one of the other things, because it's so easy to get caught up in, in you know, the performances, because this is a performance piece and phenomenally so. I think this is the first time Jones has really seamlessly integrated his B plots into the main into the main narrative. Yeah. Because, you know, Eternal Sunshine, again, I love that film. But there is a certain element of when the, the supplementary characters turn up, you're kinda of like you're kind of in the way. Yeah, almost. stuff like Elijah Wood in that movie where you're like I'm not really sure you need to be in this film. Yeah, you can, <laughs> but it's fun, but it doesn't it's not essential. Yeah. The the plots surrounding his character's friends and their relationships with real people, and their relationships with AIs and how they feel about about what's going on. And there's actually one beautiful moment where he first explains to his friends, it's like, yeah, I'm going out with an AI. And they go, yeah, bring her along. We'll go on a date. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're so acclimated <laughs> to, to how this technology works. And I think that's one of the things that's really phenomenal about this is, he, is that Jones has asked a very, very pertinent contemporary question, which is we are on the cusp of creating true artificial life, not necessarily mechanical, but something that is alive and is aware of itself. What does that mean? And I think this is a film that in 15 years' time, when we get closer to, those, to developing that kind of thing, 
technologists are going to look at it and go, this asks us very important questions about what it is that we are doing and why are we doing it. Yeah. You know, in the same way that early robot films were like, well, okay, this is not happening in the next five minutes, but we have to ask the questions about how we interact. Like Isaac you know, Asimov. Did yeah, and it, this is kind of, you know, the, the emotional version of Asimov's rules of robotics. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, we, and as much as anything else, it is, it is saying we have to start talking about this. Yeah. Because if we charge on what happens in 50 years' time when somebody breaks an AI's heart or an AI suddenly realizes it's going to outlive every human that it interacts with because we're designing them to interact with us. So this is about, this will happen at some point. But it's also, you know, it's about long-distance relationships. It's about what happens when the person you're in love with is at the other end of the phone or the other end of Skype. What what does that mean? How how does that channel your relationship (laughs) right now? You know, I, I think... This script is so perfectly balanced from a dramatic point of view. Yeah. But there's so many questions in there, and it doesn't try to answer them. It just says, we have to ask them, and it asks them very eloquently. It absolutely does. And and you're right. That's the big thing. It's like it is asking questions that we haven't asked yet, uh, and and there are no answers for, but it's time we start thinking about them. You know, Absolutely. and I think that even outside of the realm of like when these questions, these questions will be more pertinent in 15 or so years. I think that everything in here can still be related back to questions that we have about just who we are. I mean, like in very as, as much as Scarlett Johansson is asking, who am I? So is uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character. Like in reflection of her own uh, journey, he's asking those same, same questions of himself, and I think it really works on that balance. Yeah. Um, this, of course, comes is looks and sounds just absolutely oh, gorgeous. This fantastic so Blu-ray transfer. Uh, it comes with a few extras on here. There's something called the Untitled Rick Howard uh, Project, which is about 24 minutes long. Did you watch any of these? No, I didn't. I, I, I was. Weeping a little bit by the end, so I had, Fair to, enough. I had something in my eye. Um, it's a fly-on-the-wall production documentary from Lance Bangs that examines the making of the film, more by capturing, like, looking at the tone and atmosphere of the set. I mean, it's one of those type things, like an arty look, which, you know, is you sometimes see those kind of things where it's like, I want to make an arty documentary that's not really a documentary. It's more almost like, you know, like just a piece you would have projected on the wall of a gallery showing or something, <laughs> but showing like behind the scenes stuff. There's one called 15 Minutes called Her, Love in the Modern Age, which is also by Bangs, but it's a series of interviews, which is uh, writers and commentators who discuss about basically the complexities of the, the things that this movie discusses. Uh, and then there's How Do You Share Your Love With Somebody, four-minute art a montage uh, that uses a bunch of a blend, blended behind-the-scenes footage, scenes from the film, and a conversation between Theodore and Samantha. You know, I mean, it's not the ex- super extensive collection of stuff I'd hope for. And, geez, where is the Spike Jones commentary, which would, I feel, be the essential yeah. thing. But I feel like there's ever a movie that's probably going to get a Criterion release in Ooh, the next at few some years. Point. I think hers, we can safely say Criterion's at least kind of like cocking an eyebrow at oh. it right now. Well, anyway, that's it for me and Richard in this oh. Earth. I don't know what Earth we are. We're Earth 2 or Earth something. I don't know. <laughs> Earth, earth red, earth blue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, green fish, red fish, blue fish, I don't know. Uh, but you know what? the green fish. That's probably gone off. Uh, assuming those guys are still there in that other universe. I, can you hear me? Hey. Are you guys still there? Wake up. It's time to go back to you. Thank you. Thank you, alternate me. Thank you, alternate Brian named Richard. I hate you, alternate Brian named Richard. <laughs> That's actually his name. That accent. 
Ugh. And I agree with you, alternate me. Her was definitely my pick of the week. He sounds like alternate version me sounds like a villain on the Death Star for some reason. I just I don't get it. You do know what you actually sound like, right? No, I don't. Nothing. But I'm willing to learn. Nothing like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, we're back just in time to the regular timeline, alpha timeline, to do our giveaway. And this week, we have for you the latest from the Shout Factory uh, motion comics. This one is Wolverine Weapon X, which I gotta say, been very hit or miss on the on the motion comics so far, True. just because there's a lot of different stories they're trying to cover. I actually liked this one a lot. Well, one of the things that makes it so appealing is, unlike the others, which are very focused on one or two characters, this has got a shit ton of superheroes in it. Yes, it you does. Know, it's Wolverine dealing with Captain America and a whole bunch of the guys throughout this. And, and Spider-Man. This based on the run of Wolverine Weapon X, the 2009 comic book series, the, the I guess the last run of it, uh, issues 11 through 16, Tomorrow Dies Today. Uh, it's it, Basically, Wolverine teamed up with Captain America and a couple other heroes to fight a whole new generation of Deathlocks, killer yeah. cyborgs, that are appearing out of nowhere, teleporting all over the place, and seemingly randomly assassinating people. Yeah. And, it's a pretty... and weirdly enough, only people named Sarah Connor. <laughs> no. I don't no, get it. No. No. It's very, dude, it's very much the Terminator plot. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, they, they managed, more Terminators. They managed to work in, you know, a lot of great superhero elements, but they started this run by going, okay, how do we do Terminator in a superhero world? Yeah. You're right. Um... And it's we, you know, they're all weird because they they know who Deathlock is. Deathlock is a person, basically. And they're like, wait, so what happened to that guy? Because none of these guys seem to be that guy. And at the same time, it's kind of an origin of that guy, I guess. I'm not entirely clear because <laughs> a lot of this depends on you being really familiar with what's happened before it in the comic books. There's a lot of oblique, not terribly well explained references to things that happened in, you know. Yeah, or fifteen issues. You know, before you this. know, it's funny. The only thing, as somebody who hasn't read this series, the only thing that was a little bit too vague for me was they kept making reference to Captain America having just died and come back. Yeah. That was it. Apart from that, I was like, well, I, could, I can kind of catch the drift of what they're talking about. But that one, I was like, no, I really want to know more about this, guys. You can't just throw away that, that well, yeah, reference. Here, Captain America is technically uh, Bucky Barnes. Yeah. And Captain America is just Steve Rogers. He's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent at, yeah. at this point. But, you know, he's the one who's hooking up with, with uh, not hooking up with, but, you know. Partnering, partnering up, up with. I, I've just horrified myself. <laughs> <laughs> you just wrote Slash Vic accidentally. You do not want to get fisted by Wolverine. I'm just saying, when saying. Wolverine's evolved, it's literal Slash Vic. <laughs> um, there's a lot of fun to be had with this one. I thought the animation was a little rougher than it generally is with these, but, um, you know, the big bad guy is Roxxon. Can you just say Exxon? No, you can't. Can you just so you say Skynet? Roxxon, the evil giant oil cop corp technology corporation uh, who is responsible for this, and apparently from the future, they've figured out that this set of heroes who have yet to be born or are very young are going to be their biggest opponents, stopping them from total world domination in the future. So they're using time travel and death locks to send them back and try and kill them all ahead of time. Um, I, I, I did ha indeed have a lot of fun with this and I, I, you know, it's, it's a neat little chapter that I didn't even know about, hadn't read in Marvel comics history. I've always liked the death locks. This is an odd take on them, but an interesting one. And I thought the vocals here were, you know, it was okay. It was all, it was even better than I think they usually are in a lot of these. Yeah, I uh, agree. The voice acting. So this is, of course, being our giveaway. We are going to send this to you this week. Uh, and why don't you tell them how you can win, Brian? I will do that, Chris. Here's how. 
As you guys know, we've been doing a lot of sort of creative writing prompt type giveaways on Twitter. So the first thing you're going to want to do is follow us at one of us net. And then I want you to tweet at us with the weirdest slash silliest thing you could think of for Wolverine to say before he dispatches somebody. Because one of the things I've always loved about Wolverine is he comes up with these great kind of menacing one-liners, usually mm-hmm. involving the word bub. But I really want to see a situation where, like, Wolverine digs his adamantium claws into somebody and he's just like, Yahtzee. And it's like, what What does <laughs> that mean? That's I weird. Like that. that sounds like something they might actually have him say, though. But I want something even kind of either weirder or sillier than that. And uh, we're going to pick our favorites among the people who tweet that at us. And, of course, add the hashtag WeaponX giveaway. And we will pick two people. We're actually, we've got two copies this week. We will pick two people and send them each a copy of Wolverine Weapon X from Shout Factory. Right open to U.S. residents only. Yep. Two winners. Two winners. We love you. Two of you. That's going to do it. That's our show. That's it. We done covered everything. That's a long show. Thanks yes, a lot, Alternate Universe Us. I know. See how it really literally fucks with our timeline and our <laughs> schedule true. and our calendar? Do you think they're Deathlocks? Probably. That makes a lot that, of sense. The British one definitely is. Definitely a Deathlock. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Digital Noise. Once again, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast or the website One of Us Net, or us individually. I am at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And then, of course, you can like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash One of Us Net, and definitely consider becoming a subscriber. We've got great incentives. Uh, there's a little sidebar image uh, on the front page where you can just click, and, and it explains everything you get at every level. Even at the $2 a month level, you still get a lot of great stuff. So definitely consider becoming a subscriber and Got a lot of great things coming down the pipeline. It's a very exciting time, and the more subscribers we get, and the more of these uh, proposals, and, and the more of these uh, these fun things we're pursuing can come to fruition. Right on. Yeah, that's it. I'm excited. I'm excited. Well, that until next good. time, I'm going to say what I always do, which is: no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. <laughs>